Good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to the show this morning. Today's guest is Ray Bashirs with Blue Shield Tactical Systems. And Ray was with Texas Law Enforcement for 23 years. He's a master peace officer license. He has over 17 years of police officer training and 15 years of police cadet to where he trains the and military personnel and training them for uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Good morning, Ray. How are you doing this morning? Doing great. Yourself? <clears throat> I'm blessed. Thank you for asking. And also for all the viewers, at the bottom of the screen, you'll see Ray's contact information, the website. And as we go on in today's uh, show, Ray's going to go over some of the different courses, you know, the description of them. So if you yourself are interested in obtaining the courses or you want to actually provide that course for your agency or you want to pay for another agency or a department to actually receive the training or military personnel to receive the training, you know, please contact uh, Ray at the bottom of the screen right there, website, email and everything else as well, too. So, Ray, again, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Doing great. Uh, it's uh, it's not too uh, too hot here in Texas, so that's always a good thing. Yes, sir. It's a blessing. And then, so I kind of want to go into the start of everything, like rewind in time, take your little time capsule if you want. But uh, you know, what led you into law enforcement to begin with? Actually, you know, when you I was I went to the academy when I was twenty one years old. Um, probably didn't need to be a police officer at 21, but uh, I had a friend of mine that was in law enforcement. And I really, you know, I was at that stage in my life, like most young people, that I really didn't know which direction I wanted to take, where I wanted to go with life. And you, when you start becoming an adult, you start to realize, hey, I, st I have to pay bills and I need a job and I need a career, not just a, something I can, uh, you know, uh, make minimum wage at. And, and something that actually interests me. And, and, you know, I mean, I could go back to the old mantra that, you know, we say in law enforcement, uh, you know, I wanted to help people. That was part of it. I did want to help people. But at the same time, I wanted something that was interesting that I could do that's not the same thing every day. And really law enforcement offered that. So I, it was a twofold for me, really. Uh, it was something that I could uh, wake up every morning and, and go and do. And at the same time, uh, have the benefit of uh, helping my fellow neighbors in my community. So awesome. And then so in your 23 years in law enforcement, did something transpire during the course of your active duty that kind of led into your passions about what it is that you do now with Blue Shield and everything else that you do as well? Well, since I was a kid, I was into martial arts um, and I just kind of stuck with it. And, you know, I tried different types of martial arts. And, and when, I, when I got into law enforcement, I really started examining, uh, you know, what martial art I thought was really best for law enforcement and what would be best for me on the street. Uh, and, and I'm not like one of the, you get some martial artists that, uh, you know, their martial art is the best martial art and that's it, you know? And so, uh, it's the same thing with companies that do what I do. You know, everyone thinks that they have, uh, again, the secret sauce, uh, and it's, uh, we all have something to offer. And it's like a, every time one of our students comes to our class, I tell them, I say, you know, go, go to other trainers as well. Uh, see what's out there, see what's available for you and your agency. If you just get to stuck into, uh, one system alone that may not offer everything that's the you know best out there. So if you take a little bit of everything and you put it together in your program, I think you'll be better off as an agency. And we should always be looking to learn, looking to develop, uh, looking to provide what the uh, the service that's being expected by our citizens in this current environment. Awesome. And then, so what led into the Blue Shield Tactical Systems? 
you know, how long have you been doing that? Was it during your active duty of law enforcement or was that something that took place, you know, upon retirement and everything else too? No, I actually started uh, in 2014, approximately a little bit before that. Uh, it, it's like with any business uh, that you're starting, it's it's not an overnight endeavor. It's a uh, it's quite a process, and uh, you know, so many people believe that you that uh, you know they see the end result of someone who's successful in, in a particular category, and they say, "Oh, I'd like to achieve with achieve that," but they don't realize all the work that goes into putting a company together and uh, and and going out and teaching people because you have different personalities that you're dealing with. Uh, and it's a, it's a, you know, it can be a struggle, but in 2014, what kind of pushed me towards that is I was in a class, a law enforcement class, um, and he was teaching use of force. And that's something I was passionate about. And, uh, and I'm listening to the instructor and it was more just a sit and get type situation to where, um, it was, uh, it was just him speaking and there was really no interaction, uh, with the, with the, with the students. And, and I really thought, you know, I can do better than this. And I guess it's ego to a certain degree. And I, I know we all have an ego. And uh, so I decided at that point when I was sitting in that class, I, I said, why am I not doing this? Because I can do better than this in my mind. Now, again, that goes back to ego, I guess. But in my mind, I decided I could do better. And I said, so why don't I do this? And so, you know, I guess you either got to be a fool or you got to have enough confidence in yourself to to be able to step out there and, and do something that uh, puts you in the limelight. And uh, anytime you're dealing with your peers in this type of environment, it definitely puts you in a limelight, you know, and then you have the naysayers on the other side, that, you know, uh, that do the same thing you do. And so maybe I was one of the naysayers when I was listening to him. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Awesome. You know, in my last show, I was speaking with Christopher Hoyer. You know, he was with Phoenix PD for 18 years and, you know, retired some things that led up to that. And, you know, he wrote, he wrote the book, you know, training for the training for the day, uh, or I'm sorry, training for the fight or when that day comes training for the fight. I'm sorry, excuse me. And we also had uh, Chris, Chris Gregorio, you know, he's active law enforcement in Northeast. And we were kind of talking about the situations to where with the, not necessarily the funding of police completely, but the minimal, funding that law enforcement agencies provide. So, and one of the topics that came up was, you know, when, when they take away funding for law enforcement agencies, one of the first things that go is training, you know, and I, I think that's why it's a beautiful thing of what you do because, you know, it kind of minimizes that cost realistically. I mean, for the, the, the cost of your programs, no matter which one of the uh, systems or the training courses that they opt to take, your cost of acquisition and the provisions that you guys provide, it's phenomenal. And I think that more law enforcement agencies should be exposed to what it is that you're providing. That's one of, kind of one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on here. But so how does that play into effect? Because I know you guys do travel nationwide. And how does that come into effect as far as when agencies themselves need your provisions? Okay. Does that come on? to where the chief has to make the decision or how can we get your provisions into more law enforcement agencies, whether it be the municipalities, the cities, the counties, the states? Well, you know, we've, we've seen a definite increase, even in, even in 2019, 2020, we, uh, even during COVID, uh, which COVID is still going on, but we saw an, uh, an increase in business. And I think that's, that's due to what we provide. Um, you know, and it's unfortunate when you're talking about these, these budget cuts, uh, we, we've had officers that actually pay for their own training to, to come to, and, and, and some of these officers are making $40,000 a year 
to be a police officer, to get sh potentially shot and killed. And they're actually paying for their own training. And we shouldn't have that type of environment where, I mean, these obvious, obviously these law enforcement officers care about their level of training and they want to provide training uh, to their fellow officers. That's why they're coming to our courses. Uh, and, and I always tell them, I said, you know, if you're paying for training out of your own pocket, let us know beforehand. Uh, you know, we'll work with you. We, that's not our, our, we would, I mean, we want people who are passionate about training to come to our classes because they're going to be good representatives uh, for not only law enforcement, but for our company as well. So if, if we have someone who's passionate about doing that, then yeah, we're going to help them in any way we can to make it definitely affordable for them. Most officers, when they're, when they're seeing training, they're finding it online. Uh, they're finding it through social media or something like that. And they're actually putting in for it. And it has to have that approval by the chief. Now, uh, each year, um, budgets for departments is big as well. And so when we look at that, a lot of them go from October to October. So right now we're we're at the end of that budget year. So uh, you'll see a lot of training, depending on the, the, the state and the area, uh, start to drop off during because they're getting close to that budget year. And you see some that maybe have a little bit of money left over because during COVID, uh, there wasn't as much training going on. So some of that training budget is still left and some are trying to spend that little bit of money that they have now to get that training in before the new budget year. Okay, perfect. And now how far in advance does an agency or an officer have to schedule a training? Let's, let's, let's focus on agencies right now. So how mm -hmm. far in advance would an agency have to notify you, your department or on them requesting because i know you, I, I see your schedule all the time and that's what's great about your site as well too because you guys mm -hmm. do post you know the upcoming events and uh, places where you're actually providing the training but if someone wanted to schedule or like if i or you know one of my companies we wanted to actually give that provision to a law enforcement agency how far in advance do you your partners need to be able to set that aside and you know a lot that training for that division or those officers well, it's kind of a twofold answer to that as well, because it really depends if if they're looking at to be a host agency, we provide free slots for hosting. And uh, if they are looking uh, you know, to have a private training event, for, for instance, then we really don't have to do as much advertising. So we can really get that, uh, you know, if it's open in our schedule, we can get them in pretty quick. Uh, but generally, it's going to be about a three or four month advance notice. Uh, because we have to be able to advertise to get other officers because that host agency generally is not paying anything to be able to be a host agency. And so we don't charge them anything to, to host and they actually get those free slots for hosting, which okay. is beneficial to them. Okay. Hey, I'm about to add Christopher Hoyer, the, the gentleman I was just speaking. He just jumped into the stream. I'm going to add him in with us real quick. That way he can kind sure. of add some insight or ask any questions as well, too. Sure. Hey, Christopher, good morning. Going on, guys. How are you? Blessed. Christopher, this is Ray Bashir's Blue Shield Tactical, and, and Ray, this is the gentleman I was just telling you about, the retired Phoenix PD law enforcement writer of the book of you know when that day comes, training for the fight, Christopher Hoyer. How are and, you, Ray? Nice to meet you, Chris. You too, you too. So now in regard to the hosting agencies, so is that is that a long-term event where you're able to utilize that agency for your trainings at your will or is it things to where it's scheduled to, again, like that three-month advance notice that you're saying as far as, hey, we have this hosting facility agency. This is where the training is going to be provided. So, you know, kind of make your way here. So how does the – let's focus on the hosting right now. How does that hosting work? 
Well, they, they sent us an email generally saying, hey, they're interested in this particular course and, and they're wanting to host in this. Uh, so what we do is we send them some options. I, I don't teach everything. We have nine instructors that teach various topics. Right. So uh, I don't teach everything, thank goodness, because uh, uh, one thing that would uh, I would be run ragged uh, by trying to keep up with all the courses we teach. But at the same time, they send us the, the email letting us know which course they're wanting to host. And uh, then we uh, provide them some some options there for the training dates, unless they're wanting a certain month. Sometimes the school districts and those kind of things, or we have a police department that's using a school dis uh, a school room uh, uh, wrestling mats or something like that. If they're talking about the defensive tactics aspect of it, and so uh, they can only host at certain times of the year. So we try to fit them in because school's out. And that's when they, they try to host those those individual events. Uh, but, uh, you know, we work with them as, as much as we can and be able to get that uh, that, uh, inf you know, set up so they, that they can host. We, like I said, we don't charge them anything to host. So we try to make it as easy as possible. We don't have a bunch of contracts we have them to sign. We do it by email. We, we do it by uh, basically a handshake. We say, OK, here's what we're here's what we're expecting of you. Here's what you're expecting of us. And we've been very fortunate to be able to go back to these agencies uh, because once they experience the level of training that we do provide and at the price point that we provide it at, they're really interested in having us again for the other courses, especially courses like our defensive tactics course, our de-escalation instructor courses, which is extremely popular right now. Perfect. And one of the reasons I'm bringing up the, the hosting agencies is, again, I, I know that it takes a lot of advertisement for individuals to even know you exist. Again, that's why we're kind of doing this show right now. And also, you know, kind of expanding territories. So if it's kind of like leasing a building, basically, just how you as you covered with the schooling to where when school's out, hey, there's open rooms to where the rooms are available and everything else, too, to where if I were able to have facilities, you know, nationwide that were specifically set aside for training courses for law enforcement, you know, that way I can get a calendar based for you know, what you already have booked and we can start looking at that three months advance and everything else to where we can start scheduling different law enforcement agencies, because I do think it is vital, you know, what it is you provide. And that's also one of the reasons I wanted to invite, you know, Mr. Hoyer on here as well, because, you know, he does, he goes inside law enforcement agencies and kind of helps with different things as far as what he's seen while he was in different preventative measures that law enforcement today can take, you know, to better ready themselves just as you do. Right. And so if I set up the different hosting agencies, you know, that's something that we'll be able to, you know, kind of talk about, you know, via email or some phone calls to kind of find out which territories would be best suited to kind of expand out the ones that are kind of receiving that minimal funding or the ones that aren't really exposed or have any of the resources around them to expand that said training. Yeah, and there's grants out there as, as well that are available to law enforcement agencies like the COPS grant uh, that, uh, you know, they're doing uh, basically federal government is providing the, those local cities and counties if they apply for those grants uh, money for de-escalation training. And so that's available to them as well. And that's something that right now we're in the process of uh, uh, putting in for. So we'll be one of those companies that provide or able to provide that type of training to them. Now, uh, with the de-escalation, we, we have it approved already through multiple states. Matter of fact, uh, it was at one point, I'm assuming it still is, it was listed in the International Chief of Police Association catalog as well. Uh, the FLP had contacted us in reference to that too for a de-escalation training because they realized the importance of uh, that training and what it's able to provide. And there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding as well when it comes to 
to that particular topic because uh, people think that uh, de-escalation is just verbal and it's not just verbal. Uh, and so there's a lot to it. And we're not telling officers to jeopardize their safety when uh, uh, when we go and we teach our de-escalation uh, because de-escalation sometimes is going to work and sometimes it's not. And so uh, we, we have to deal with uh, every aspect of that. Uh, but it's important to be able to talk to people. And, I, and you know, when I was younger, uh, I, uh, I, you know, I didn't do such a great job at that. Uh, as I got older and, I, and it was it was uh, my body would hurt when I got into those physical fi- uh, fights with people out on the street, especially in my 40s. Uh, and, and I started to realize the importance of de-escalation. And, and you know, it's just the learning how to talk to people and given options. That's all. It's not it's not a it's not anything that's a secret. Most of us do a decent job at it, but some of us don't do a great job at it. And so we really need to try to work and get everybody on board with that. Um, but right now we're also approved uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, our company is a provider for defensive tactics that uh, you have to have you pre-approved through the state of Pennsylvania. And what I really like about Pennsylvania, what they've done and it's coming up in 2022, is that every department is required to do a minimum. Four, hour, four hours of defensive tactics. Now, that's not that's that's not enough, obviously. But at the same time, it's a good start. So we're at least moving the right direction, hopefully, at least in that state. Perfect. And now kind of going into de-escalation. OK, I, and I touched with, you know, Mr. Hoyer and, you know, his one of his good friends, you know, uh, Gregory, Chris Gregor, Gregorio, I'm sorry. But in regard to, you know, things have changed over the course of the years. Okay, you know, media is putting a big push on how the public views law enforcement agencies. There's a lot more resilience towards law enforcement agencies. There's a lot more lashback at law enforcement agencies. So, through the course of your years since, since 2014, you know, when you started and did everything with the Blue Shield Tactical and the de escalation systems, I mean, I, I know it's all still kind of the same, but how much training or how much more? Do officers have to be ready, basically, as far as the de-escalation goes now? Because so many more people are more standoffish when law enforcement officers either stop them, approach them, handle domestic disputes, and the list goes on. So have has your course had to adjust or change or add to in regard to de-escalation opposed to what it was, let's just say, like those seven years ago? Yeah, you know, I think that we we have to be cognizant of that. We have to be aware of the current environment and make those changes as they come along. And yeah, we do make that. Ours uh, involves a lot of culture as well. It's not just the verbal persuasion aspect, but there's a lot of culture involved in it because uh, most of us are not familiar with all the cultures that are necessary. And we haven't been subjected to that. So it's hard for us to understand why a person may be reacting the way they're acting uh, based upon the, the culture, their environment that they've been in. And so uh, verbal persuasion does work, but it, it also has to evolve around uh, understanding, uh, you know, the type of environment this individual comes from and, and what they're kind of expecting when you make that contact with them. And each person is kind of a little bit different. Uh, the, the, the other thing is verbal de-escalation or de-escalation, that term really doesn't even stop in that physical encounter. And so even when we're using force, uh, we were actually teaching them to try to de-escalate even when you're using force at that time. Uh, and you can't always communicate with these individuals because some of them we know that are obviously under the influence of narcotics or alcohol and may not uh, be processing what you're trying to tell them. Uh, 
but at least the person who's recording on the outside with the cell phone and that body cam that's picking up that information at the time is hearing what that officer is attempting to do. And that's uh, that's to continue to communicate with the suspect that's, that he has uh, trying to get under control. Right. And then, hey, hey, Chris, you want to jump in here in regard to like the de-escalation? And I, again, you know, like with the title of your book, you know, when that day comes training for that fight. So, you know, with what Ray's saying in regard to the actual de-escalation that, I mean, no matter how much we train and as Ray just pointed out, every situation is going to be different because, you know, every domestic dispute is going to be different. Individuals, you know, can be under the influence of narcotics, alcohol, you know, they may not be in the same rationale because of the domestic dispute going on. So like in your time in, how important did you see like de-escalation training because it's not it's not something that is just a given, as you know, as Ray's pointed out. So, you know, how important would it have been for I know you said that, you know, the Phoenix PD has, like you know, one of the best trainings nationwide. But, you know, how important is it or lack of do you see the necessities of, you know, the de-escalation? Well, in my experience, I did 20 years, Phoenix, uh, got into some pretty major scrapes, probably like you did as well. And then. Um, the, the biggest thing that I found with our with our guys was everybody wanted to get in there and get a piece of whatever it was. And so I kind of took it in another direction. Um, just like you mentioned, you know, with we call them 918s out here in California, they call them 5150s or EDP, emotionally disturbed persons. Um, dealing with those guys brings a whole nother element to it. Um, and so what I've seen with with a lot of agencies, especially when you've got like Phoenix, where you've got you know, Glendale on one side and Chandler and Scottsdale and all these other agencies that are, that are coming in to help us. You'll have four or five or eight dudes screaming at one guy. And we all know, I mean, you, you can't, I mean, when you're, when you're an EDP or you're on dope or whatever else it is, you can't focus on one guy, never low, let alone eight or nine or whatever it is. So, um, so outside of just a regular de-escalation portion, which Phoenix got really heavy on because we had several, yeah, I'm not going to use the word questionable, but they could have probably gone a better direction um, from what we actually did out there on the street. And I'm not going to say me because I wasn't there for most of them. Well, that's not all entirely true. But, um, you know, the, the de-escalation that Phoenix implemented was pretty much the national standard, which was OK. But I, I didn't feel like that was enough. So I took it to the next level and I started doing some SWAT negotiation training which I thought was just paramount because no matter what we're doing, we're negotiating all the way across the board. I mean, no matter what it is, we're going to be negotiating a guy, get a knife out of his hand or just get him on the ground or get him in handcuffs or whatever it is. And um, I've got another whole project I need to talk to you guys about as we get further along down the way here, because I've got a brand new project that I've now been tasked with that I'm going to probably need your help with. So I hope that answered your question, Michael. I'm not sure. So I mean, I, no, it is it's, it's because this is an important conversation. You know, again, going back to, you know, general public's, I mean, you could turn on the news any time of the day and you just see the negatives, but nobody really sees the behind the scenes of what, you know, Ray dealt with in, you know, in, in his 23 years, what you dealt with in your 20 years. And it's something that's still ongoing. And, you know, training never really stops because, you know, new environments are you know exposed and because of what the media feeds individuals you have to even be more on your toes now than ever before so with that de-escalation and that's that's why i really wanted to kind of touch on this is you know to kind of find out how much 
I'm not going to say retraining, but how many additions, Ray, do you have to add in? And is it a, is it kind of a, I'm not going to say a cookie cutter, but is it all the same for like law enforcement agencies or do you take into consideration what you were talking about earlier when you brought up about there's so many different cultures that a lot of individuals aren't, you know, familiar with or anything else stepping in. So, and then also with military personnel, you know, so there's different environments that different agencies are exposed to. So is it all the same all the way across the board or is there different strategies that you and your partners implement in that, you know, it increases the, the readiness, let's just say, for all different officers, agencies across the board, military personnel as well? Yeah, you know, uh, our instructor that and Jason Taylor is our instructor for the de-escalation instructor course. So it's a three day, 24 hour course that uh, that he teaches. He was also in the military as well. He uh, uh, he was in the Air Force. He was a Raven. He um, he uh, pr protected uh, nuclear weapons uh, and he, he taught courses for. Uh, the Air Force as well. So he's quite familiar with uh, uh, the military and what's expected there and 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 is familiar with their lingo, which I, I was not in the military. So uh, I, I, I'm not able to relate there uh, with that. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, we, we try to, to, depending on who our client is at the time or who's needing that service, we try to tailor it to it. We also uh, don't just run the same videos every time that we teach that course. So we look at current uh, situations that are going on and we tailor our de-escalation instructor course to the current environment or what we're what we're seeing out there uh, when it comes to uh, the videos and and, and, and recent incidents. Uh, the state of Texas actually where I, where I live now where I worked I worked in the DFW Metroplex here and that's where I retired from uh, but uh, uh, the state of Texas came out and required de-escalation uh, for law enforcement officers and they made They're an eight business. hour <laughs> yeah, they did. But, you know, here's the thing about it. What they did, though, is they created a lesson plan and they put it onto their state website and they allowed agencies to download that lesson plan. Well, what you had, though, is you had trainers that had never taught de-escalation. So they didn't understand how to get by it. You can teach anything, but if people are not willing to listen to you and they're not willing to go out and attempt what you're what you're uh, what you're presenting to them, then what's the point at that point? We're missing out. In other words, we're not even getting officers to attempt that. And what that some for some agencies, what that turned into that de-escalation when they just downloaded that lesson plan because they didn't understand, they would just show videos. And they would say, okay, what do you think about this video? And they, and they really wouldn't go into depth about the culture aspect as well that we spoke of previously. And uh, they really wouldn't get the buy-in from their officers. And that really, I, I, that's what the state of Texas was trying to achieve when they created this lesson plan is buy-in. We were trying to get officers to give them an alternative. But again, if, if we're not teaching it in, in the correct way to where the, the instructors that come to us actually buy in themselves and say, hey, you know, this is something that's beneficial to myself and my agency, then they're not going to go back and they're not going to teach it that way. And so that's really what we're looking for is to get the officers to start thinking outside the box a little bit and start getting some buy in on, on what we're teaching and and because it works. Yeah. Perfect. Can I jump in for a second on that one? Well, I was about to relay it to you anyway, because it kind of goes back to what you were saying when you were talking about how, you know, the training with SWAT, where they were doing the training, but nobody would show up and you're like, hey, how did that even work? You yeah, know, no, so it's the that, that kind of blows my mind. I think that you hit it on the head with with culture. Because I know as an instructor, I know you're probably the same way when guys show up, if they show up at all, which more, more often than not, it's mandatory. Dude, this kind of stuff, nobody wants to hear about. 
because they want to just go kick indoors and do all the fun stuff, which is great. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm at that stage in my toward the end of my career when I was on where I wanted more often than not to just talk my way out of a fight. I mean, I love getting into scrapes and all this great shit, but dude, I don't, I don't need to go home with a broken arm. You know, I mean, I don't want to go against two or three cartel guys and end up on the, on my, on my ass, you know, so talking my way out of fights, I'll, I'm all over that. So, um, but the other half of the culture is like in this new venture that I've taken on, it's mostly, um, the homeless population. That's a whole culture in itself as far as I'm concerned. And then you've got to be able to disseminate which culture you're dealing with at any given particular time. Now, like a domestic violence thing, if you're going into a house and they only speak Spanish, plainly that's a culture you need to be aware of and how you're going to handle that. You know, can you communicate enough to get what you need to get done without using physical force? And I mean, obviously the, the possibilities are endless here, but um, I love that you just threw the culture in there because that's the thing that I'm going to start teaching with my brand new guys trying to figure out, okay, you guys have an understanding of where we sit and what your role is and don't, you know, don't stay within the lines because you've got to go outside the line sometimes to figure out where you need to be at any given particular moment. If that makes any sense. So I, I want to touch base on that real quick, you know, with both of you, because it's something that's kind of like, I, and I deal with it every day as well too, when you have so many different, with the cultures and different, the language barrier is something that's kind of really out of sight, out of mind to a lot of the public. I mean, even myself, until you just brought that up, Chris, is because de-escalation, and, and this is vital to understand because with de-escalation, for example, and and I know that when you look at different areas, you know, kind of like where, where you're at, Ray, and both, well, both of you, you know, it's the, to where it is a high Hispanic community to where, the Spanish speaking. So a de-escalation, if an individual that is not bilingual is, or an officer is the respondent to a domestic dispute or to any call and they're not bilingual, I mean, because seconds are critical in a lot of matters. So if you're not able to, you know, communicate, let's just say in any type of way to where they're going to be cognizant of what you're trying to, what message you're trying to convey to them. How much does that play into, you know, de-escalation and how do you readily, how do you readily, or how do you make an officer or an agency ready for those situations, you know, outside of, you know, making the call for backup for somebody that can come out there that is bilingual. How do you handle a de-escalation event, especially in domestic disputes going in with that communication barrier or any other barrier that cultures may, you know, throw our way or throw your way? Well, you know, it's, it's what we have to understand is it's always, it's not always verbal either. It's also the body language of that officer when they're on scene. Uh, what are they conveying through their body language? So if someone just doesn't, if they don't understand what you're saying uh, as far as the language that you're speaking, they do understand body language and they pick up on that as well. And uh, we've all seen officers sometimes that upset people, uh, not what they're saying, it's their body language that they're, they're putting off or, or their mannerisms that they're, they're giving. And so uh, it's just like you go into some uh, Hispanic households uh, and you'll see, uh, you'll see, um, you know, uh, basically it's, a, it's like an altar uh, that may be set up, you know, and it's being, it's being respectful uh, of that religion, of that culture and, uh, and of their beliefs and understanding that it's just like, you, you know, we, I worked in a, a large Vietnamese population as well. 
which quite is quite diverse the city I worked in. And so uh, you would go in there sometimes and and you would see the shoes that were they were at the door. Well, they they were aware. You know, if you stepped into their home with your shoes on, it, it was somewhat offensive to them, even though they didn't always say anything to you up front, you know, about, hey, would you take mind taking your shoes off? But they would uh, they would definitely uh, uh, be cognizant of that and they, and they would look at you in a different way. But if you're able to relate to your local culture just a little bit, if you're able to say something in their language or you're able to uh, come in there and, and recognize, uh, you know, a, a something they have on their wall. Uh, uh, if you just, and that's why the experience of an officer, a veteran officer is so important because if they've been working in an area a long time, I guarantee you, they probably know a few words in Spanish, especially in Texas. And uh, you know, they, so they're able to kind of relate right off the bat and, and maybe uh, speak a few words to this individual and then have the body language to go along with it. So we can kind of uh, bridge that gap a little bit. And then until we can get an officer out there, that may speak uh, their language fluently that can really help them as well. So, uh, you know, it's not just one aspect of it. It's uh, there's much more to it in that body language. Like I said, is a, is a, is a key point as well. That's, that's huge. And I was going to just let me touch on that too, because it's not just deescalating our, our suspects and our victims. It's us as well. Sometimes because you walk in and I know a lot of where I worked, huge Hispanic community as well. And a lot of those folks are really afraid of the police. So they're going to do whatever you say. Um, even if they can't really understand what you're what you're trying to convey. And unfortunately, you've seen us both of you guys. I'm sure that you walk in there and you got a guy all tough and then these guys start to cower. So what does that do? That ups their level because now they're feeling like, well, I can do whatever I want because I'm the authority. And it's like, wait a second, we need to de-escalate ourselves to just kind of calm the situation down just to get our resolve, whatever that happens to be. You know, and I, I've seen that before, too, where I've had one of my former lieutenants the guy was 100 miles an hour all the time. And I'm like, boss, slow down, man. Slow down. Let's walk down. Like, you know, like Bob says on on uh, colors, you know, <laughs> it's like we don't need to go in there hair on fire for all these things. When the time comes, yes. But if we kind of go in there and just have that demeanor that they can they, they can respond to, it's, it's usually a much better outcome. Now, obviously, if it's going to be violent, people are throwing chairs and knives and shit like that. Well, that's going to change, of course. But, you know. Well, it's also the, the way we leave that situation, you know, oh, if, if we if we leave that situation, I mean, cause there's plenty of times our kids are present. And so we get out there and when we when we take a family member away, uh, maybe that we arrest for a domestic violence issue. It's it's how we leave that situation. So do we do we want it, even though we, we took away their, their their parent, do we want at least try to make it? somewhat uh, a better understanding so maybe we leave a, a teddy bear with them or we 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 uh, leave them some a little bit of memorabilia from the police department um and so uh and then we maybe go by there and check them or stop off and talk to them if we see them outside playing i mean it's just it, there's there's ways you can build a rapport with the community and and we've got to be better at doing that sometimes than what than what we do we got to be more proactive we like to be proactive when it comes to crime but we need to be more proactive when it comes to building relationship and there's so much misinformation that's out there right now in reference to law enforcement and and we really got to start redirecting that and doing a better job of communicating what we do and why we do it yeah i agree you know and another thing too so because what is it this is past year i want to say the whole year but how they've been talking about having a mediator that rides along with officers you know and, and that's again why i wanted to kind of have this conversation with you because it, it's and then they talk about budget cuts 
to where, hey, they're taken away from training, but then they want to talk about, you know, having a ride along de-escalator with you or, you know, a, a counselor, let's say. But, you know, if proper training, you know, what both of you do, you know, and especially, you know, Ray, your, your situation where you're providing de-escalation for these officers, you know, why not implement that into where every officer has that ability rather than having to try to rely on, you know, some ride along as that, you know, I don't, I don't really don't want to say the, the negotiator, but in the same sense, I mean, every situation you go into, every officer has to be a negotiator to some extent, correct? So, I mean, how much, how much realistically is it a benefit to have a separate individual? I mean, it's always good to have a partner with you, but for them to talk about the extra cost of having another individual there just only specifically for de-escalation events where it would just make more sense and be more cost effective to train every, every officer for that moment. So how much does that play into effect as far as, you know, trying to push and try to make this, you know, cause Chris and I were also talking about, you know, some of the different trainings that he does to where I, I really believe what both of you do should be something that's mandatory training for law enforcement agencies and officers across the nation. I mean, it's, it's just a benefit that I feel that it should be mandatory. Like, you know, Ray, you touched on it in, where they're just watching videos but if you don't have that live person there interacting and putting like real life situations about the hey what this just said right here this is how it's going to relate to when you go out here in the field and you know you run into the different cultures the different environments the different drug addicts alcoholics or domestic disputes that you're going to face on every day you know yeah it's 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 definitely uh we're doing better, should I say. Law enforcement's doing a better job of providing training when it comes to de-escalation because, of course, right now that is the flavor of the month uh, or their flavor of the year, you know, and, uh, and, and and it should be something that continues. And, you know, it used to be taught through verbal judo um, back in the day, back in, uh, I think it was in the 90s um, or even sooner than that, uh, you know, verbal judo was around. And, uh, of course, we kind of got away from that. And when it goes back to, uh, one of the things that Chris touched on was, uh, you know, the SWAT aspect. You know, uh, there's so many people that want so many officers that want to be uh, special operations, you know, and 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 that's very little of what we do in law enforcement. But I tell you what we do on a daily basis. We communicate with people. We talk to people on a daily basis. So why are not we better versed in that? It's just like we're going to go more hands on with someone than we're ever going to use our firearm. So why aren't we more versed in, in going hands on with people and to communicate with them during that and, and before that? So hopefully we don't have to go hands on. Uh, but so I think we're doing a better job at it, but it's going to take checks and balances as well. It's going to take these supervisors. The biggest problems I think we have in law enforcement is failure to supervise and failure to train. So we really need to start concentrating on as well as these supervisors holding officers accountable making sure that they're reviewing these these incidents to where they say, hey, what could we have done a better job here uh, as far as de-escalation uh, or did we do a good job? And if the officer did a really good job, let's also point that out. You know, there's a lot of officers doing great things on a daily basis. And unfortunately, not every department says, hey, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you doing uh, the, the traffic stops you do. I appreciate the honors you have. Uh, we're so stat driven as, as law enforcement officers or I mean, law, uh, law enforcement agencies. And so we get hung up on those stats. 
and we think, well, an officer is not doing anything if they don't have a bunch of citations. They're not doing anything if they don't have a bunch of arrests. And what we don't realize, we miss the fact that maybe they're out there and they know all their business owners. Maybe they're out there and they're stopping off and they're throwing a ball with a kid. Maybe they're doing more in their community than going out there and writing citations, making arrests. And we assume that's that's what a police officer is when there's much more to it. Exactly. You know, and Christopher, if you remember from, you know, our show and with, you know, you and Chris, you know, Chris brought up a great point as well, too. And I'm kind of and what Ray just said is kind of what kind of triggered in my mind about, you know, law enforcement, the, the supervisors, you know, actually training. But it's also the leading by example aspect as well, because we were so Ray, just to kind of, you know, bring you up to speed on it to where we were talking about, you know, officers being able to admit that they have things going on with themselves and, you know, having to go talk to, you know, the head shrink or anything else like that. And, you know, having the supervisors going in there in front of everybody in God and country to see them going in there, you know, it, it plays that mind on individuals. So, Hey, this is the way that things are supposed to be done. So, you know, to kind of touch on your point about, you know, them actually providing the training, you know, a lot of training, the best training in the world is always going to be an individual that is leading by example. You know what I mean? So, you know, with your with the supervisors receiving your training, let's say, you know, and, and then being able to say that, hey, I need this training, too. And, you know, whether it be a refresher course or some of the things may be brand new, you know, it's important that the supervisors do become, as you stated, proactive in, you know, their different departments, their agencies and even during roll call. You know, I mean, roll call is the, the best time because everybody is there to be able to collaborate and see where everybody's minds at and then kind of reinvent or introduce in, hey, we got these de-escalation trainings that, you know, if, if it's something that the agency as a whole, or the chief that make as a whole, that was mandatory, you know, having the supervisors being suggestive of that, it would push what you do a long way because, again, the leading by example. Yeah, I agree. You know, you have to, uh, matter of fact, we had Terre Haute uh, Police Department in Indiana, Indiana. Uh, who um, their chief came to our de-escalation training. Then he brought us to his department to train every supervisor in his department on de-escalation so that each one of them are instructors in de-escalation. And so he was trying to get that. And I believe he got it. He got the buy in uh, of a lot of those supervisors once they attended the course to go back now and have those checks and balances in place where they say, hey, could we do a better job here? It doesn't mean we have to discipline the officer when it comes to, to that situation. Uh, the biggest problem, like I said, that we have, one of, the, one of the other issues that we have is we discipline officers, but we often don't provide the training that goes along with that discipline. How do we expect an individual to improve if we don't provide them the training, if we just say, okay, you did this wrong. Now, now where's the training to go along with it to make them better at it? So where they hopefully don't do that same thing again. So that's why it's so important for de-escalation for the, the supervisors to, to be aware of it, understand the dynamics of it and, under, and the details of what needs to take place. So that later when they're reviewing that, they said, officer, they can say, okay, where can we, where could we have been better here? Or did we do really a, a really good job? And let's use that officer as an example to the other ones that are on that same shift to say, this is what our expectations are. Okay. And then now with instructor courses. Okay. So to kind of get into, cause you guys have a wide range of different courses that are offered for agencies, officers, military personnel. So, if you could just explain the difference between the instructor course and the courses that are, I guess, for the general officers. I mean, is there a difference? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the training's the same, but 
you know, to be an instructor, you don't only have to know the training, but you also need to know how to, you know, relay that training in real action to the officer. So I, I know there has to be a little bit more entailed in your instructor training opposed to just the general training. So if you, if you could kind of broaden that for us. Sure. Well, you know, I think probably Chris can attest to this as well, that uh, probably in his agency, there, there was a lot of instructors that had the instructor certification from the state. Right. But that doesn't make them an instructor. Just like I tell individuals that come to and most of them don't even teach that have that instructor license. And, and it's like when I tell uh, officers that come to our instructor course of defensive tactics or or even the de-escalation that they come to. Um, yeah, you're going to have the certificate when you pass the material. But at the same time, does that really make you an instructor? It does. You have the certificate. But now are you going and you're doing the things that is going to improve you as an instructor? Are you actually following the path that we're creating for you? Because we want you to go back and have the buy-in of those officers. Just like when they come through our defensive tactics portion for instructor course, I tell them, I said, guys, if you think it's just back, uh, going back and just teaching techniques, you're solely mis mistaken there because it's also going back and educating your administration in, in the route that we're wanting to take here and what we're doing and get them on board. Because how many lieutenants, captains, chiefs, deputy chiefs do you have in, in DS, or, I mean, excuse me, in uh, defensive tactics training? You know how many generally we have? Zero. Zero. Because what they go to is they go to administrative courses. They go there to and get a red, I mean, excuse me, get the yellow brick and put it on their shelves. But even when you're going to even those type of courses to be an administrator, to be a, to a leader, uh, when you come back, are you really practicing those things? Are you really trying to implement the things that you're learning in those courses? Because if you're not, what's the point of going? So I tell them the same thing when it comes to our, our, our defensive tactics instructor courses. I said, you know, there's much more to it. So when you go back, that's just the start of it. We're just giving you the foundation. So now you're going to really have to build up on that. Now we're here to help. That's one of the things that we provide is we say uh, if we provide phone support, email support, uh, free courtroom testimony. Uh, so there's a lot of things that go into that. And it's not just, OK, here's your certification. Go back and teach a few techniques and everything's going to be better, you know. And, you know, the, the, even the, having the in-court testimony is huge. It's one of the biggest, you know, overlooked aspects of something like that, too, going sure. there and saying, hey, this is the training to receive now with how much of it is ongoing? I mean, because I, I know that some of your courses and, you know, individuals will see when they visit the site or they can even see it like scrolling across the bottom right there that sure. you, know, you, you have the level one, then you have the level two. But, you know, how much more is is there a suggestive sequence of the training courses that you, your agency provide that, I mean, is it, do they base it on, you know, their culture, their environment of the agencies and their uh, location, environment and uh, uh, demographic, or is it kind of a, a sequencing of training that everyone should kind of take heed to and take that course in those steps? Or well, each, well, yeah, it, it, you know, each department's a little different. Should I say so? You know, some teach, uh, you know, Krav Maga, you know, and I'm a brown belt Krav Maga. And and uh, so that's all they teach is Krav Maga. Well, the problem there is and, and like I said, if I didn't have that experience in Krav Maga, I think Krav Maga is a great art. But at the same time, everything uh, is a nail and everything's a hammer to Krav Maga. 
So it's it, it, everything has to be uh, uh, hammered in, you know, and and so that's not the case with uh, some of the ground control aspects that we teach. So a department really has to evaluate that and say, where are we needing? Are are, are we good in our stand up department, or, or do we really need some, you know, uh, some of that along with our ground, or do we just need ground control or something along those lines? Uh, there's so many people out there that are teaching that time, and I'm black. I'm a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as well. So there's a lot of people out there that teach, uh, you know, ground control aspects, but they base it on the sport aspect of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and not realizing because they, maybe they've never been in law enforcement and there's ones that teach that have never been in law enforcement. And so uh, it's hard for them to focus on really what we need and what we do uh, in law enforcement. And not every part of Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, uh, is as appropriate for law enforcement officers. And then now with that being said, like with ground control, especially so, you know, when the agencies, when the cadets are going through and they're receiving their initial training, how much of your courses are relevant to, I mean, they're all relevant. I don't want to say sure. that. Sure, no, that's fine. But I mean, as far as the, you know, going in, especially for the cadets, I mean, because, you know, learning fresh is, and that's why I always want to promote Chris's book of how important it is for individuals to read that and, you know, take heed to that. You know, mm -hmm. as the cadet, them going in, you know, receiving that training before they are exposed to all the, the misleading, the misrepresentations and everything else that they're going to see from veterans and even from supervisors, you know, how important is it to get your training into the cadets, you know, more so than that of, you know, the veteran officers and the actual supervisors? Well, I'm actually glad you brought that up. Our response to aggression instructor, matter of fact, of course, it's a 40 hour course and it's uh, it's been picked up by the Eastern Missouri Police Academy there in St. Louis. Uh, we're teaching it for the first time in December, but it's after we have instructors in that area for that uh, academy. That's all they're going to teach for their defensive tactics. They're going to teach that response to aggression. So it's actually replacing uh, PPCT, which has been around since 1978, 1979. It was, it was uh, created by Bruce Siddle. Uh, so it's actually re replacing that. And so uh, it's going to give them a, a lot better dynamic of standing ground, handcuffing, baton, those type of situations. Uh, the key, though, no matter what we teach our cadets, the key is for those agencies as well to have ongoing training. And that's unfortunate. What we're now we're seeing is most of those agencies do not have a defensive require, uh, tactics requirement once those officers come to those agencies. And we really need to get these states on board to where they start mandating not only defensive tactics training for these law enforcement agencies, but also a physical requirement for these law enforcement agencies uh, that uh, every officer has to be physically fit to be able to continue to hold your license and to be able to continue to be a police officer. Now that's not gonna happen overnight. It's gonna take time. And I'm not saying that we need to, to wield it with a, uh, uh, you know, a, a large stick. Uh, but what I am saying is that we need to understand that that dynamic needs to happen because that is part of the reason why we ended up in the situation that we're in today. It, that's huge. And, and Chris, if you want to touch on that as well, too, because, you know, one of the conversations that we were having was how much things change, you know, every day, let alone every year in the growth of everything else. So with the dynamics of that training, did you see anything that even though you Phoenix being, you know, one of the highly trained, were there anything or any, was there any kind of training lacking that you wish you would have seen more of in your department or, you know, the departments across the states? Well, I'll be honest. I mean, there, there are times and I, I don't like doing it, but I will. Um, we're in the DT room and we're training with these guys and 
I mean, God bless them. They do a lot of really good stuff. But I mean, a lot of the stuff that they're teaching is just shit they're finding off of YouTube or whatever it is, you know, and which I get. I mean, they're, you guys are tasked with a job. You've got to come up with a, a lesson plan, whatever it is, and you're under pressure and so forth because the latest, greatest thing or whatever it is. And um, when I went through LE DefTac for the Marine Corps uh, a couple of years ago, I was up against a guy that was considerably smaller than I was, but he was a he was a black belt in like four or five different disciplines, which was great. It was awesome. And we start going doing some ground fighting together, and he starts putting all these little freaking slick moves on me, and <laughs> I reverted back to what I do on the street, which is just basically overpowering him, you know. And when I brought that back to my Phoenix guys, I was trying to point out to them, it's like, look, all the stuff that you're teaching is great. I love it all. Don't get me wrong. But in a controlled environment at 30% with a compliant, you know, non-aggressive person, it works great. The second that guy starts to fight and, and becomes aggressive, the shit that you teach him goes right out the window. Um, so I'm on a different kind of a level with with how I handle when I'm teaching guys what I what I think we need to do. It's got to be obviously now we're staying within the lines because it's got to be something that is within policy. Um got to be within the use of force continuum as, as well of course and it's got to be something that's not going to cause undue harm to our bad guys which as far as i'm concerned my former boss said hey if the handcuffs are off and you're within policy there are no rules which you know of course is not entirely true but you know if you're in a fight for your life i'm, I'm gonna do what i gotta do so and um, so go ahead yeah i'd like to touch on that too if you don't mind you know, and, that, and I agree with what Chris just said, you know, if it's not simple enough across the board, no matter what we teach, nothing's going to work 100 percent of the time. And so there, there's a big difference between techniques and concepts. And so even though technique may fail, concepts generally stay the same. And so that's one of the things that we focus on is getting officers. I mean, I mean, think about this. How many times I know we, we've all been in law enforcement and we've we've seen officers on the street and, we, and ourselves have been in that situation to where two guys, two officers latch onto a guy's arm. One's on each side and they're pulling back and forth. And it looks like two dogs on a rope, right, that are they're trying to get control of this individual. And so what we really talk about is when you get the person on the ground, which, you know, every law enforcement officer needs to know how to control people on the ground, because every situation we get into when someone resists, they're taken to the ground. I've never seen one someone who's who's fully on resisting officers who's handcuffed standing. And so when we when we get them to the ground, uh, what we concentrate on is riding them like sea biscuit. Right. We, we concentrate on just tiring them out. I give the analogy that it's like a video game. If you got your two characters in your video game, you'll see the energy bar start to go down for one of the characters. And that's the character that's actually losing in, in that little uh, uh, fight or whatever it may be for the video game. So it's the same thing when law enforcement officers are on the street. It may not be a technique. But if you can work together as a team and control a person on the ground and lay your body weight on them and both have the same ideology, the same goal and not worry about handcuffing, because handcuffing is for compliant people. That's where we got to understand that as well. Handcuffing never looks like in the middle of a fight what it looks like at training in, in, a, in, a, in a DT room, because it's always just however we can get cuffs on this individual. So we really got to concentrate on working as a team and realizing uh, that we, we just got to tire this person out until they're ready to be handcuffed. And sometimes that's just laying on them. And, and that plays a large part in what you were saying about individuals and the officers actually having to have that physicality test and be at a certain par 
for them to even, you know, maintain their license or maintain, you know, their, their shield basically, you know? So, I mean, that, that plays a large part on that. And with what you do, how much into policy do you try to push what it is that the provisions that you guys provide? Because a, a lot of what the both of you do would be very, very, very beneficial to agencies, officers nationwide, worldwide, actually, you know, and so how much into policy do you, your, your partners or anything else go to kind of expose, you know, your training opposed to what the, the end training is? What's been there, for, like you said before, you know, it's from the 70s, you know, they were used to one type of training, whereas you expose them to a proper training that's going to, you know, ready the officers more for real life tactics. So, I mean, do you ever try to push into the policies aspect of it nationwide or in just jurisdictions to make it to where it's a mandatory training? And like you said about like the physicalities and things like that, do you try to push that more? nationwide because I know, I know each department have their own you know based on the chief and the policy makers and, and that with the cities and states counties municipalities blah 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 but you know how much control do you like to have as far as trying to push the, the mandates that hey look this is the training you know that needs to be put into effect right now yeah we definitely talk about uh use of force and policy and we call it response to resistance not not uh use of force i definitely recommend changing those titles for agencies who are still calling it calling it use of force because we say response to resistance because the offender who is the one that calls the action by the law enforcement officer not that the law enforcement officer is just pulling up and automatically using force there has to be some type of action to cause that reaction by law enforcement that's why it's called response to resistance so we really concentrate on teaching policy as well because you would be so surprised the amount of officers, even veteran officers out there that cannot tell you when they can use their taser. They cannot articulate that unless it looks unless it looks familiar to something, maybe in a scenario based training situation to where they, oh, he turned his back to me. And now that is familiar. I'm familiar with that because that's what they did in the academy. And now I can deploy my taser or they don't know when they can deploy pepper spray. They don't know when they can uh, deploy baton. And so that really comes back to as well. I mean, think about this. How many how many times did you see uh, I assisted him to the ground in, in a uh, in a report? And then you look at the actual video itself and the officer picked him up above his waist and he slammed <laughs> the offender to the pavement. But he wrote in a report, I assisted him to the ground. It's because okay. that's something that was trained years ago for officers to do. And when you if you if you look at the end result, which is possibly that officer being in a courtroom setting in front of a jury and they write into a report, I assisted him to the ground. Now the jury's going to think that this officer's a liar or the jury's going to think that this officer is trying to hide something. And and it really paints us in a negative light. That's why we have to start also talking about not only the, the technique, uh, technique aspect, but how to articulate when we're using force and to be able to communicate while we're out there using force. And to get those supervisors on board to start not just clicking approve on those response to resistance reports, but actually sending them back to officers when there's not enough detail in there. So it starts training our officers to, uh, to, to write a much better picture of what actually occurred. 
And now, and I don't mean to be long winded here, but at the same time, what you also have is officers writing in reports uh, and using terminology that is not understandable by a jury. You have people that are on a jury who are plumbers, electric, not saying that these people are not educated because they are, but, but what I'm saying is they're not educated generally in law enforcement. So, you know, you, you have officers writing a, in a report, I activated my emergency overhead equipment. And then, then they're up on the stands speaking that way. And the jury, no one raises their hand and goes, yeah, I don't understand what he just said, you know, but we really have to put it in a plain language and understand that we have to uh, uh, be writing these reports and, and, and speaking on a stand so that the, the jury members actually understand what we're talking about. And because law enforcement, we have our own lingo as well. We have our own culture as well. Right. Chris, you want to touch on that? Yeah, going, uh, going way, way back. Um, something I want to touch on about uh, having that extra person, that extra ride along. Uh, like a CIT kind of a person. Um, on one hand, I think it's a really good thing because oftentimes we show up in uniform, people don't want to talk to us, but they're willing to talk to this other person over here who looks a little bit softer and is more professionally trained than we are. Um, the other half of that is um, just on the one portion is obviously it's bad for officer safety. You know, they're not armed. Typically, they're not wearing equipment, these kinds of things. Um, and to, to answer your question on that, you asked earlier about um, – can we get officers more squared away on these kinds of things? You guys know as well as I do. I mean, you got guys that just don't get it. I mean, they just cannot talk to people. They're great with a gun. They're great with, you know, DT and stuff, but they can't talk to people. And unfortunately that's just, that's our culture. That's what we, we got to be able to adhere to everybody, unfortunately. So um, like with me, I'm, I'm great at talking people down. I mean, I, I consider myself almost a SME on that, but there, I mean, I'll tell you right now, I mean, we talked about this earlier where with a handgun, I'm not going to take a 15 yard handgun shot because I know I suck and I know I know my weakness. So you you got to as an instructor or as a supervisor, you've got to recognize that you're going to have certain guys you don't want out there talking to people. So on, on the one hand, I do support having like with San Diego PD, they're bringing guys on board, CIT folks and having those people on board for every shift, whatever it is. And they're negotiating with however it is that they're doing it. Um, as far as the supervisor's role goes, I'm sure you guys have seen this before too. And it, it's probably one of my number one pet peeves about any law enforcement agency that we're not promoting leaders. We're promoting test takers. And you can plainly see where that's going to go, what direction that's going to take. And like my former boss, who I still like, I got some kind of personal issues with him. The guy's not a leader. He's flat out not a leader. He's super smart, um, but he's one of these guys that's too smart for his own good, you know? Um, so that's a whole nother topic as well. The physical part, I know with Phoenix, they dropped the physical requirements that we were no longer, we never had to do after, I think it was 2006 or seven when I had like eight or 10 years on whatever it was back then. Um, yeah, the physical requirements are no longer mandatory. And what do you think happens there? I got into it with a guy. I won't bore you with the details, but I got into a kid. We were on a, it was an active shooter. I was up on a rooftop. I had to scale the wall, get to the roof, and this other guy couldn't get on the roof because he was a, he was a bad tub of shit. And I told him, I'm like, if you can't get over that fucking wall to back me up, then don't back me up. Go 10-8 and leave me alone because I don't want you out here. And that's a, a really kind of a bad attitude to have on my side, and I get it. But I was pissed. Like, now I'm stuck here by myself because you can't get over a six-foot wall. Are you kidding me? Because you don't train to the standard that we need to have out here on the street. And so I, I got a big problem with that myself. So that's that's my my soapbox, sorry. So, <laughs> anyway, 
Those well, you know, <clears throat> go ahead. No, I was just about to ask you about how you felt about that as well, too, because it, it again, it is, it is important on, you know, knowing what it is that's going on and being able to physically detain, physically be prepared, physically be able to hop walls, especially in pursuit, you know, because pursuit isn't just a, well, hey, here I can just drive and go here. It's the what's going to happen when you have that resistance and, you know, being physically capable of doing that. I mean, it, it plays a large role in that. So, I mean, how much does that play into what it is that you do? You know, here's the thing about it. Uh, I was I was in my 40s when I retired. I was a patrol supervisor um, and, and I also was a supervisor over internal affairs as well. So I, I dealt with several aspects of the department when it came to, uh, you know, these types of incidents that we see. Uh, the, the the problem, I think, with administration sometimes, and, and let me tell you something, there's good administrators just like there's bad administrators. There's good officers just like there's bad officers. And I think Chris touched on one of those as well. But uh, my, my point is, is that uh, um, we, we can't just look at it from one aspect and say, OK, well, liability for our agency just comes from outside. The liability also comes from inside. So what I'm saying is if you have an officer that a department terminates for uh, excessive use of force, let's say, and we've seen that happen. When was the last time that department trained that officer to be within their policy? So what they do is they actually create liability to where the officer may come back and sue that agency themselves and say, well, the reason I used excessive force is because you guys didn't train me how to be within your policy. The last time you trained me was in your police academy, and that was seven years ago or five years ago. And so how do you expect me to be able to be current in what it's, it's just like having someone who they can only operate a motor vehicle uh, once every five years for four hours. Right. And now we put them back in that car five years later. And they go out and have an accident. Really, whose fault is that? That's it's it's part of the part of the responsibility comes from the agency themselves, and that that is continual training regimen. Uh, we treat it, we treat training like it's a vaccine, right? We get one shot in the arm and we're good to go. No, it has to be a continual process of, of being uh, having those small treatment processes to where complacency doesn't become the problem, and also becoming uh, aware and being able to articulate your use of force policy. Or what we like to say again, response to resistance policy. Perfect. And then, so how forced does the training happen? Where you know, again, like a lot of times, things aren't even brought to light until an instance happens. You know, it's like you don't see laws change until there's a loss of life somewhere. You know, to where you know, if these strategies were implemented in as a mandatory training. You know, we wouldn't have to wait until an officer lost their life or a couple officers lost their life or, you know, even the civilians lost their life. You know, it's it's it shouldn't take a tragedy to enact these different things. So like so, Chris, with you know, because you've had what was it, three or four critical incidents, I know. So yeah. how much and and I know it's somebody from the sidelines, they're always going to have a better answer of how you could have trained or how you could have reacted in that moment. And, you know, Ray, you can touch on this too. So, I mean, because we're always going to be able to say, Hey, you could have handled this different. Okay. But you know, and that's why it's so vital that I believe that all officers, all agencies, all military personnel should be trained, you know, because there, there is a, this will work no matter what type training. You know, but in the same sense, 
you know, there's different situations that populate, you know, the sideline is going to say, we well, should have done this, but in the moment, how can you ready yourself for that split second decision? Because I also want to touch here in a little bit on, you know, Chris, you, you, I, and uh, Chris spoke before about imminent danger because, you know, imminent danger, every officer themselves view their own life differently. You know, they also view the situation that they're in differently. So, you know, at what point does imminent danger become a reality that can be kind of thrown into the report to where Mr. Sideline over here telling you what you should have done differently really can't say, hey, this is what you should have done. You know, I mean, does that make any sense or? Yeah, no, I know because um, what I've, my experience is what I've seen is, um, unfortunately, well, oftentimes we're, we're trying to be proactive and as an instructor, Ray, I know you know this probably way better than I do. Um, you get guys, again, that, like we talked about before, that don't want to show up to this training. And so they're not taking it seriously. And then when when the time comes, when that when that day comes for them, they're behind the curve. And then they're wondering, well, maybe I should have paid more attention in that class. And then then you roll it over to the supervisor side and they are they're kind of held out to dry too because it's like well i sent the guy to the class so it's not really my fault that the guy wasn't he didn't show up or whatever even though he checked the you know he checked the box that he was there um and then i think a, a huge thing i know you touched on a little bit early michael was uh continuous training because it's great i mean I'll, I'll teach guys how to shoot rifles all day long and then we only go up there once a quarter to shoot so these guys haven't touched that gun in any kind of capacity for the last 90 days and then they come back and they expect to be proficient again. It's like, it doesn't work that way. You've got to continue on with what you're doing. And a huge thing for me, I mean, I, I hate the word liability. I hate it, but that's, that's a huge part of it for where, you know, God forbid you get into a, an officer involved shooting or some kind of a major critical incident and you you've checked off on all these things and then you get some slick defense attorney on the stand questioning well do you understand this dynamic and then you can't explain it even though it's right there in the training curriculum well you took this class but you, you don't know what this means uh and then what is that going to do of course you know that's going to come right back on us so uh, and, and i, I want to touch base on this as well too that in regard to the funding aspect again because like with firearm training rifle training when, when funding's cut, you know, I, I know that it takes away from training, but one of the factors that's taken away that a lot of individuals don't realize or is kind of overlooked is that of munition, okay? Because when funding's cut, the munition provided to each agency is cut. So what does that take away? It takes away you being able to go to the range or do the proper training and, uh, you know, whether it be the firearm training or the rifle training, you know, proper discharge of firearm training to where it becomes that, When's the last time you had your training? Oh, it was about like seven months ago. Right. So, so my, my opinion on that, I think that boils down to laziness because um, if you want to be trained up, um, you'll find a way. You will. And uh, I, I'm sure you probably read this part of the story where I was in, in the indoor range when I first got my rifle and I had no other way to really get out and shoot because, you know, we only they only allowed us to shoot at a certain time. So what I did was I took a, you know, literally a paper plate and taped a cat toy to the end of the rifle. And just walked up and down the indoor range for hours at a time, just getting that thing squared away. And then I would go into a completely dark room and just do magazine exchanges 
for hours at a time, just do mag exchanges. So that's how I, I snuck around all the other stuff that, you know, well, I can't shoot the gun, but I can do these other things that'll still help me be more proficient and efficient. And it, it was freaking great. So I think a lot of guys that they use the excuse, well, we can't do this because of this. Well, that's bullshit because you can if you want to. There's other ways. Dry fire is a very simple way to do these kinds of things. Um, obviously, defensive tactics, get a punching bag, whatever it is, you know, all the stuff that you guys teach, we can do on our own on some level, whatever that is. You know, if with one of your kids, your wife, one of your neighbors, friends, go to the gym, pick a sparring partner. All these things are entirely possible. So when people tell me that they don't have an opportunity to train, I call bullshit on that one. So that's just my opinion. But so well i was also going to say that uh, we're more reactive when you're talking about uh uh the, the foreseeing the things that uh, that we should see in law enforcement that are coming up we wait to an officer's being injured in the line of duty or we wait to we've been sued and then now we decide to, hey we need to do something about this well when we can see these things beforehand if we just look beyond but so many agencies actually and administrators that are out there some of them they just cross their fingers and they hope that they're not the next uh they're not the next minneapolis you know uh you even notice even uh and I'm not going to pick on him a little bit, I guess you could say, but the chief of Minneapolis, you noticed that uh, when he was on the stand, they asked him, they said, uh, you know, about training. And he said, uh, uh, well, they, they finally asked, they said, well, should we speak to your training cadre in reference uh, to this? And he goes, yeah, that would be, uh, that would be uh, best to speak to them. What does that tell me? That tells me that he wasn't aware of what the training was that was going on in his agency. And I understand that he has a full plate. Don't get me wrong. I understand that he has a lot that he has to take care of, but, Administrators need to be going to this training. You know, even my agency, they wrote into their policy that if you reach the rank of lieutenant, that you did not have to go to defensive tactics training, you know. And so they did that because they wanted to, they, they didn't, you know, it wasn't important to them. Well, if it's not important to your chief and it's not important to your administrators, how can you expect it to be important to your officers? You know, I was a slick sleeve and I was sitting in briefing once and everyone was there on shift that day. And, uh, the two sergeants that were uh, on that shift, they sit up there and they said, uh, they said, well, one of you is not doing exactly what we told you to do. And they said, uh, uh, you know, and we expect you to do better. And I said, well, and I said, listen here, guys, I said, everybody knows who you're talking about. They're in here today. I said, and the reason they don't do what you're wanting them to do is because neither one of you make them do what you want them to do. I said, you, you don't follow up with them. And so, so that's the reason why they're doing what they want to do. So if we're going to have that expectation of training and, and to meet a certain standard, that ha standard also has to come from the top down. And uh, and so we really have to start concentrating on that. You look at the you look at the firearms training when we, Chris was speaking about that. You look at the firearms training that we have now. We're still standing on the line shooting at paper targets that don't move. We're 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 not doing anything that is indicative of a gunfight. We're not doing anything that's we're just qualifying. And so we really got to start moving that direction. It's not just defensive tactics, but it's their firearms training as well to where we're just not checking the box. We're actually the, we're, the weapons jamming. We're doing reloads. There's so much more that we can do in law enforcement. But, you know, and I realize the funds have to be there as well. But there's a lot of things we can do for free that we just right. don't do. And just stair step on that a little bit, too. I think, again, it, it kind of boils down to laziness. And I wrote this part of the story as well. It's like, OK, so you're. As just an example, you're a detective, you're a lieutenant or whatever else it is. At some point in time, you're going to be driving home, right? And you see a couple of your guys getting into a scuffle on the street. Are you going to stop or are you going to freaking pass go and not collect 200 bucks? 
you know, if you don't stop, as far as I'm concerned, you shouldn't be out there. You should be freaking bagging groceries at Walmart, as far as I'm concerned, because that's bullshit. Um, and so for me, what I always said was, look, I don't ever know when I'm going to get into a scuffle. It may not be my officers. It may be my family at home, and I need to stay in shape. And again, that just boils down to laziness. Do you want to maintain that, or do you want to just take your chances, you know? So, so I well, think... The funding part is a huge thing as well. Yeah, we definitely need that. And and not to get too off off topic here, but quality training as well. It sounds like what you guys do with your company, Ray, is, is stuff that people are going to want to go to. And, you know, if you get that kind of training and it's, and it's continuous, then people are going to be much more efficient on the street, I think. so. Well, I'm a little biased, you know, when it comes to our uh, to our company. You know, you should be. So, <laughs> so I'm a little biased there, but I can tell you this: we don't. If you go online and you look at our reviews for each one of our courses, we don't filter those. We don't get bad reviews from officers that attend our courses, and and I can honestly sit here and say that, and, and that's a good thing. And like I've told our instructors, I said, if you're going out there and you're getting a bad, you're getting bad. I can take, you know, I can take one or two on a, on an eval sometimes, you know, that, uh, but, but if you're getting, if we're, you're teaching a course and you're a new instructor for us and it's not meeting our expectation, you won't be working for us. Right. We're not just going to continue to allow you to, to teach our fellow law enforcement officers material that is, that is not up to date. Cause that's what we see. I get people that contact us and actually ask us if we have an online defensive tactics instructor course you know, that, uh, that they can attend. And I said, no, we won't. We won't ever have an online defensive tactics instructor course. I said, how can I get up on a stand and testify that you went through an online defensive? That's like going online and getting your blue belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's just not, it's just not, uh, it's not applicable. It's not what we do. And, and so we, how can we be a, uh, ask you to to invest in us and your agents to invest in us to provide your training if we're if we're not even uh, caring about it ourselves. Right. Well, that's a great point. And, you know, kind of going back to what you were saying about, you know, when we go to the range and we're shooting at the paper targets, you know, we're trained or, you know, you're trained to shoot torso because the torso can't move as much as the head, the legs, the arms can. So that's why, you know, we're trained to, you know, shoot torso. So, I mean, when, when we have, you know, officer-involved shootings to where, you know, it ends up to be fatal force, you know, a lot of that plays into that training to where you're shooting paper targets all day long and we're trained just to hit torso because it's the part of the body that can't move. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. But, you know, it's the more reliable way of putting somebody down, you know, not necessarily kill them, but to put them down, you know, and detain them, you know, but, uh, so, you know, how much of the training, you know, because you have the, the ground defense and everything else and ground control, because a lot of that plays into that scenario to where if, if we're sitting at the range and we're trained, hey, shoot this paper target, you know, aim for torso, aim for torso. You know, some of us play around and we do some headshots every now and then, but, you know, it's the train, hey, hit the torso. So when you're doing the ground control, because that it, it takes it a step higher to where, hey, look, you know, in this moment, you know, I, I do want to be able to detain the suspect and, and bring them down to where, you know, how much of your training enables an officer or an agency to not have to discharge firearm as much because they're trained on, you know, close quarters contact where they can just come in and, and get them to the ground and having that physicality. So it, it, it has to be vital 
that agencies learn this because if I'm just, again, shooting a paper target, I'm trained, hey, hit the torso, hit the torso, you know, something that resulted in a fatal force. Otherwise, if I would have had proper training to where maybe I could, you know, use taser, they got those new things out now that just kind of like wraps around the, the strings around the legs to where, yeah. hey, it's, we don't have to worry about the torso. <laughs> yeah, we don't have yeah. to worry about the torso anymore to where we can just go up and, and use our, our ground training and stuff. So how much of that plays into, I, I mean, I don't want to even say play into the importance because, you know, what both of you do is vital, but how much of that could eliminate, you know, essentially the, the fatal force instances to where if officers, agencies are proper military personnel are properly trained on how to do that close quarters, be comfortable going in close quarters and detaining a suspect. Yeah, that's it's, it's quite a long answer there. You know, So uh, uh, what I'm saying is, uh, a lot of incidents that we see start off with some type of either verbal encounter or, or the, that eventually lead into physical force being used. And um, if we would have just used force when we should have used force, then oftentimes we can eliminate uh, the potential of using deadly force and uh, later on in an encounter. Now that goes into several aspects, not only the physicality of being able to perform out there on the street, but uh, the size of the offender, the age of the offender, the age of the officer, there's so much that goes into play there. And it's not just one dynamic is, is, going, is going to solve the problem, but I can guarantee you this, we will increase the chances uh, or decrease the chances of deadly force being used if we're training our officers on a regular basis. Uh, and then how to articulate what level of force they use and why they used it. You know, I think we touched on it earlier, you know, when we was talking about, uh, you know, the naysayers that are on the outside. And sometimes those naysayers are even from in that officer's own agency that say, oh, well, he should have done this or he should have done that. Well, if what that officer used is or did is reasonable, it doesn't matter that he didn't do the other. You know, I mean, that was an option. So if the officer looks at it, it's just like I had one of our instructors that uh, he uh, for his agency, they don't teach any kind of they didn't teach any kind of ground aspect into our course. And he went back and he used what we call a Camorra lock. And we use that on the ground. And uh, and he applied that. And they said, well, we're going to write you up if, if you don't make it fit within uh, PPCT. And he said, well, I, PPCT doesn't teach any ground aspect of it. He, you guys sent me to this. And then, uh, but his agency got hung up on the fact that if it wasn't something that they taught, then it wasn't reasonable. And that's not true. I'm not trained in a landscaping brick either, but if I'm rolling around on the ground with you and I'm in a fight for my life and I reach over and pick up a rock and I cave your head in with it, it's still deadly force. It, I just didn't use the fire, but it's still reasonable under that circumstance as long as I can articulate why I did what I did. And so we get so hung up on that and we say, oh, well, the officer didn't do this. Well, it must be wrong. Well, no, that was just one option. But I think that really goes back to also training our officers to understand it. List those options of what you didn't do and why you didn't do it in that report as well, because that really takes away some of that naysayers that that may be out there. And how is our administration supposed to be able to make informed decisions on use of force when they don't go to use of force training? A hundred percent. Well, you, well, Chris, you remember during our uh, show with Chris, Chris brought up a great point and Ray just touched on it. And that's why I kind of like smiled when he said it. But, you know, Chris Gregorio was saying about how one of the things that is the most overlooked and ignored is reasonableness. You know, with supervisors or, you know, the, the use of force board and the different attorneys and, you know, are looking at, you know, these cases, you know, 
was what you did within reason in that moment. You know, and reasonableness is kind of like overlooked where, and again, that the media feeding into this, you know, it kind of gives law enforcement agencies that bad rap. But, you know, again, being properly trained where it does put that reason into perspective for the, the law enforcement officers, the agencies as a whole, and especially the supervisors. And I know we have brought the supervisors up numerous, and I mean numerous times throughout this broadcast, and it's vital that. I believe that it should be mandatory. And that's why earlier, Ray, I was asking you about, you know, how much you actually go into the actual policies of the different agencies, because, you know, what you do is vital. What Chris does is vital. And I'm, and that's why I wanted you both to actually be on here, because I really would like to, I wanted to introduce you guys to one another, because, you know, both of your trainings together and things like that, you know, I myself, what I want to do is I want to expand this out and go into kind of what you were saying, Ray, about the hosting facilities because I'll go around and get the hosting facilities to where these law enforcement agencies are able to receive your training, receive your training, Chris, because it's, again, it is vital to what you do. And I want to kind of touch base on, on this right here. Okay. For, for, if if both of you, because I want to kind of, I know we've been talking about law enforcement agencies, you know, throughout this broadcast and, you know, Troy's VF, VFC 13 command senior chief for the United States Navy. Okay, so, you know, when he's saying about, you know, his responsibilities also. So how much of your would you provide? Because I know a lot of the different training that you provide, Ray, also is for military personnel. So, you know, how in relation to military personnel does the training differ or is it the same? Basically, is it the basic like psychology behind it, physicality behind it? Is everything still the same or do you kind of adjust the training courses for military personnel opposed to law enforcement staff? Well, I say I would say that we do, but, you know, like the National Guard, for instance, we, we, we've trained them and we've, tra we've trained at Tinker Air Force Base as well. And so but when you look at that, uh, a lot of our military personnel, especially National Guard, is being called upon now to do law enforcement duties. The, and, and so they really need to understand if they're being called upon, then we need to to give them the training that's necessary to be able to deal with their own population, which is much different than going over to a to a foreign country to us in, 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 a, in a time of combat. The engagement's not going to be the same. And so we, we have to understand that we got to provide them with that training so that they understand that, hey, it's not uh, it's not a, a necessarily a military uh, engagement. We're just supporting law enforcement. And so that's really what we try to focus on. So we got to we try to tell them, hey, it's the same. It's just the same for the citizen as well. If a citizen goes out of here and uses force, just like that law enforcement officer, they be they have to be able to articulate why they use that force. And and, and luckily in the great state of Texas, uh, if you break into someone's home, deadly force can be used. Some other states are, are a little different in that area uh, when it comes to uh, to that. And so uh, the biggest misunderstanding with uh, civilians as well is, is they think, well, if I did that, then it would be different for me. No, it wouldn't. It would actually be the same for you as well. You just have to be able to articulate why you use that level of force that you use to protect yourself out of the street, just like a law enforcement officer has to do the same thing. Perfect. And Chris brought this up during you know our our, our broadcast about how individuals think, hey, I'm going to go get a gun and I'm safe now. But that 
you know, it, when, it, when it comes to use of force, you know, how are you going to properly, you know, care for, protect your family, yourself, or, you know, your surroundings, you know, business owners, you know, it's the, well, hey, I got a gun underneath my counter here or next to my bed or my nightstand or wherever the case may be. But, you know, how are you going to really defend yourself and be ready for that? So, I mean, I think it's, it is huge that we're, you know, a lot of times civilians kind of discard, you know, what we're talking about in this conversation from their mind, but it's so relevant to everyone as a whole, you know, and I just want to touch on one thing too, you know, in regards to like military police and stuff like that, you know, all the badasses in the military, you know, everybody always talks about the Marines, the Berets, the SEALs and stuff like that. But a lot of people don't realize that military police have to be trained to take every one of them down. So the military, the, the MPs are military badasses for real, you know? <laughs> sure. My, uh, my niece is actually, she's a major in the army right now. She's stationed at the Pentagon. And, uh, and, uh, so I don't have children, so I'm very proud of her and, uh, uh, she's definitely smarter than I am. So, uh, but, uh, uh, it, you're, you're right. Uh, it, you know, the military is, it's, uh, it's very similar to law enforcement. There's a camaraderie that's there as well. And that's why so many individuals, when they leave the military, just like when they leave law enforcement, they really miss that camaraderie that goes on. Uh, and, uh, and it's not, it's not much different than law enforcement really in, in some aspects. And, um, you know, the, not every um, not every uh, police officer is well trained, just like not every military uh, officer is well trained. You know, uh, but we definitely are supportive of, of the military. That's something that we uh, we were glad that we've had Border Patrol in our classes. Uh, it's something that uh, we're, we're really happy that they come and they see what we have to offer. I gotta, if I can, I just got to touch on something really quick. Um, you guys answer this however you think it, it needs to be uh, addressed. But I've, I've found a lot of the guys that I used to work with. Um, I, I mentioned this in one of the chapters talking about um, physical ability is one thing. I mean, if you're, you know, like in my case, six one one ninety, I can pretty much take care of most things unless I got a guy that's a, like a ninja, like Ray, you know, which I'm. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it's, I find it less, the physical ability uh, versus the physical willingness. Um, and what I've found a lot of guys now is they're, they're flat out telling me that they will not go hands on. They will not pull the trigger. They will not do these things that are going to get them jammed up physically or um, professionally within their careers. So, I mean, I don't know how to address that personally at, at the moment because you can't make a guy get into a fight if he doesn't want to. I mean, you can, you can threaten him with suspensions and all these kind of things and, the moral side of it, if somebody gets hurt and all these other things, but fact remains, if you're not physically willing to get into one of these confrontations, I mean, what, what do you do about that? You know, I know it's way off topic. Sorry. I didn't mean to jump in. That's not, that's not off topic. I mean, that's, that's great. I, I, I want to hear Ray's side on this as well too, because that's, that is vital because even, and like you said, I mean, and I made the comment that, you know, if, if somebody goes into the Academy, you know, even the military, you know, cause you look at military today, back you know when they had the draft you had individuals that weren't even qualified to lift a pencil let alone go to war i mean that's the reality of it you know and a lot of individuals didn't want to have to use force so what's going to happen they're going to end up dead you know or worse they're going to get their squad killed or you know the you know even with law enforcement so that training you know going in where you, you might as well be an emt so you can see the individuals the officers on the gurney 
of, you know, what you're responding to of what's going to happen to you if, you know, you really do have that mindset that I'm not going to use force. I'm not going to use my gun because it is going to be, there are going to be moments that, you know, force is required. Ray touched on it perfectly, you know? So, but I, I do want to kind of touch on this, you know, I don't, I don't want individuals to take this the wrong way, but, you know, with women in the, in law enforcement and it, it's, physicality is a lot different. Okay. There are some women that can, that are stronger than, you know, some men and things like that, but realistically, genetically, men are always going to be, you know, have, I'm not going to say always, but for the vast majority have physical dominance than that of a female. So with that being said, that that's again, why Ray's courses are so vital because there are certain maneuvers and especially with him being a ninja, <laughs> you know, there, there are certain things that regardless of somebody's physicality or their strength, there are ways to better prepare yourself, whether it's, you know, the de-escalation by, you know, verbally de-escalating it, but there are situations that, you know, with proper training, such as Ray's that, you know, someone that isn't really physically dominant, is able to, you know, detain or get the situation under control. So how, how much of that plays into, do you, is your course, you know, aimed at everyone? Does it ready everyone, Ray? Or are there special courses that you're able to provide for individuals to prepare them if you are the less physical? You well, one thing, I mean. you, yeah, one thing you can go ahead and put out your email. That way they know where to send the hate mail if you saying that. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> Because uh, 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 I, I have gotten the same thing when I've said that before as well. You know, just like I, I made the same statement you just made. And I, I, and I had a, a female officer actually, uh, she wrote on the eval that I was being sexist because I said that uh, 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 there's some men, men in general are physically stronger. Uh, women. That doesn't mean that across the board that every man's going to be stronger than a woman and vice versa. Uh, but the, it's it's science and it is the case that men carry approximately 40% more ma muscle mass than a female does in general. Um, but does that play a role in a physical encounter? Of course it does. You know, even though we teach hands-on in that aspect of it, I always tell officers, it's safer for you to use the tools that are on your belt. If you can articulate using those before you go hands-on, then that's much safer for you as an officer and it's much safer for the suspect, uh, as well. But we, what we do is, um, we have females that come to uh, female law enforcement officers come to our course as well. And some of them want to pair up together. And I have no problem with that. If them, them pairing up, especially there's some the same agency and those kind of things. I have no issue with that, but we actually make them switch partners. So they have to go over to a male that's twice as the size of them. So they get, they get to see what works for them and what doesn't. And that's, what's, that's, what's key because it's just like for me, there's certain things that if I have a certain body type that I'm dealing with out on the street, that's, I'm more apt to use this particular technique or this particular concept compared to one that may not work for that necessarily that body type. And so we have to evaluate the techniques that we're using, the concepts we're using to see, okay, does this meet the masses? For that's one thing, because if only a small portion of your department can do this, then why are we teaching it? Why are we teaching? We, we have to have it to where a majority can at least have a good chance of applying it. And if it doesn't work, because nothing works 100 percent of the time, not even your gun works 100 percent of the time, even though we'd like to say think that it does. There is no tool in our arsenal that works 100 percent of the time. Exactly. And Chris, you want to you want to touch on that? No, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. You're absolutely right. And so what do we do about that? Exactly what we're talking about right now, you know, um, see, um, 
what uh, Troy is responding and talking about mental preparedness. And that's what I teach um, the before, during and after um, preparing yourself mentally for what may happen. And then, um, yeah, I love that hate mail. <laughs> um, At least now I know where to send the hate mail. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah if you want to black out my name, because just in case. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, though, because, I mean, you know, preparing for the fight mentally is one thing preparing for it physically is something completely different and something we haven't really touched on in this episode yet is um preparing emotionally after the fact you know you get into a deadly force confrontation or like you said you got to smash a guy's head in with a brick you know that's something you're gonna have to live with you know now you've just saved your own life you had to take a life in order to do that um that's that's a very delicate balance for so many different people and especially when you know, I mean, I'm not going to touch on my story too much, but, you know, before the worst gunfight in my life, 30 minutes beforehand, I'm at the station impounding marijuana, you know, and then fast forward and I'm, I'm literally watching an officer getting killed and then and fighting for my life, you know, and you, one thing just doesn't play into the next and all of a sudden here you are. And then dealing with the after effects of, of something like that, um, even just a, just a fight. I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, um, I think she was LA, LAPD or LASO got into a scrap with a guy and it was literally, Taser. Nah, I'm not sure if it was that one, but she got into a, it was a fight for like five minutes with this guy and she came out and was just freaking battered and bruised and talking about all the emotional stuff that she was going through during this fight and being able, being able to finally subdue this guy and, and take him under control. And then all the stuff that she had to deal with after the fact, you know, like a, I think she had a broken orbital and all kinds of scrapes and scratches and a broken finger and something else. And um, I wrote her a, a nice letter. I'm like, Hey, I, I want to use your, your experiences to help my guys deal with what they're going to be dealing with out on the street. And um, I'm, I'm less, well, I'm, I'm getting more into the physical side of things again. Now with my new, new position, but my, my expertise is more on the side of, preparing yourself um, mentally and emotionally for these kinds of things. And that's, that's no easy task. Believe me when I tell you so. Troy, how are you? Welcome, Troy. Hey, <clears throat> nice to hear you guys and see you guys. You know, I wanted to touch on that too, what he just said, uh, the mental aspect of it. You know, I've worked with some female officers. They're absolute beast. And I, and I'm, and I'm glad that, you know, to have them as backup. And, uh, and I, and I've worked with some male officers that are victims waiting to happen. And so, uh, you know, you it's, looking at me? It, looking yeah, at me? yeah, but uh, the, the, the point is, 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 is they're out there and it doesn't matter about their gender. It matters about their training and what their mindset is as a police officer. And it's the same thing for the military personnel as well. You know, there was a, a report that would show that there's there's a there's a lot that actually don't even even in a gunfight in the military that may not even be shooting at the enemy themselves because the mindset is not there to take the life of another human being. And that's why we train. We don't want to be in that situation to where we have to take the life of another human being, but we want to be mentally prepared uh, or at least uh, uh, emotionally and mentally prepared uh, for to be able to solve that problem. What we're seeing now in law enforcement is law enforcement is having a better reaction to, uh, you know, given the guidance and the psychology after those incidents occur to where now officers are able to deal with that mentally. Uh, just like I tell uh, law enforcement officers, I say, why do you think that uh, they pay our military? They pay our military to kill our enemies. And, and, and that's just a fact. Now, they don't pay them just to march around and look good in uniform. 
They actually pay them to to, to do that. And unfortunately, law enforcement sometimes has to do the same thing to be able to defend our society and defend our laws. If if uh, if if the people's children are being killed inside of a school, they pay those law enforcement officers to go in there and be violent and solve the problem at that moment because that's what's called for under those circumstances. And so we have to get past that in our society and and realize that uh, law enforcement is a deadly, sometimes violent job. And and we have to realize that we have to support our officers to be able to go out there and handle it, something that m- most citizens are not willing to do or want to be involved in. Right. Welcome, Troy. Thanks. Hey. And then, hey, Troy, and <clears throat> I know you've been, you know, sending the comments over and everything as well, too. So how much training goes into, I mean, I know, I know everything's probably internal with military, but you know, along with what Ray's saying, as far as the training provisions and things like that, how much do you guys actually retrain and do like the refresher training? Is it something that you guys do actively or is it something that, hey, once training's done, you come back for a rehash? How, how do you find like with the training? I know you're actively engaging with, you know, the officers and things as well, too. So, yeah, this is a, a well, to keep it's kind of a tough question because. As, as far as training goes, uh, on my side and, and what my area and where I'm at in my field, we're constantly training. So um, we are the adversary. So we train on tactics uh, that keep us fresh. So it's a constant battle with us. But just to kind of concentrate on uh, with weapons and your qualifications and being in the military and being able to, to fire and command and execute, I can tell you this, there's not enough. So we can be prepared and think we're prepared, but I've got, and I made the comment in there, um, you know, training twice a year to go into combat with live fire, to me, that's not satisfactory. <laughs> so uh, if we have the opportunity to do more training, we, we take it and we grasp it. Uh, but it depends on the mission, what we're doing. So not every day is a fighting mission. Uh, some days it's a logistics mission. So we're constantly training 24 seven in my area. It's warrior toughness and mental toughness is what I'm more concerned about than, uh, the actual action of pulling the trigger. I need to make sure that we're training on the actual impact of the member being able to pull the trigger after the fact and to be able to carry out the mission. So, um, yeah, that's no, that's no easy task, man. That is no easy task. No. <laughs> and, again, and again, so, I mean, and to kind of go back what I was saying earlier in regard to imminent danger. So, you know, imminent danger is something that I guess even with civilians, you know, when they're, they're trying to protect themselves, their families, their businesses and things like that. How, how much training for understanding what imminent danger is goes into these training courses that individuals know, hey, this is the time, like in Troy, like you were just saying that, hey, this is the time you fire and this is the time that you talk. I mean, it's, but every situation is going to be different, you know, and Chris, as you know, you know, but, you know, how much of imminent danger plays into that training of this is when we, this is when we fire, this is when we discharge. And I mean, how much of that goes in, if that makes sense? 
Well, I, I think it's huge. You know, not only is it the, the mental aspect of, of the training, I teach a realtor safety course and a matter of fact, in a home defense certification course for civilians. And, uh, and I was teaching uh, the realtor safety course and I asked how many, how many of the realtors in the room had farms? And there were several that raised their hands and they said, yeah, I carry a farm. And I said, well, where do you carry it? And they said, well, I carry it in my purse. And I said, okay. I said, so do you have one in the chamber? And, and I think it was a couple of them in the room said, no, I don't, I don't put one in the chamber. And I thought, so if we're in that moment of need, now we're going to have to get to our purse. We're going to, we're going to have to, uh, you know, put one in, in the chamber and now engage. And I show a video of a, of a realtor that she, uh, a guy came in and she was showing the, the, the home to him. And he actually put out a piece of rope and he laid it on the bed. He laid gloves on the bed. He, he laid all these things to be able to, to harm her out. And then, uh, and then she pulled farm and he pepper sprayed her and then never uh, fired around and so uh it goes back to you can have all the equipment and the training but you also you also have to have the mindset to be able to use these these tools i think as a as most individuals would be better off carrying a knife on their person uh or something along those lines than they would a farm that's why i have such a hesitancy to say that uh farms would be a great thing in the schools for teachers my wife's a school teacher and uh, let me tell you, I've taken her out to the range uh, several times, and uh, she's not a person that needs to be in a school carrying a farm. And I don't mean that in a negative. I love her to death, uh, but at the same time, she does not have the mindset uh, to be able to use that weapon. And that's why I have a hesitancy. I, you know, I think that it's, it's great that maybe even school teachers do have that available to them, certain individuals inside the schools. But there has to come the training along with that and checks and balances to make sure that those teachers are doing the right thing and have those farms in a safe area. And they have the training that is updated constantly to be able to respond, because if they don't, then we're going to have we're going to have a bad situation that unfolds. And that's a great point. You know, it kind of goes into what we spoke about at the very beginning of this broadcast in regard to culture, you know, educational and uh, educational systems is kind of overlooked in that situation. As we know, you know, we've been seeing it more within these past couple of years to where, you know, you are having school shooting incidents and it doesn't even really have to be a school shooting. You know, how, how readily, how, how ready are school teachers, the counselors, or even just the staff, you know, at the schools, you know, for these situations, you know, to kind of go into like the realtor situation where they're showing homes and things like that. But within a school, you know, it's the, you know, that, that training is also being vital and it's a, it's a system that is completely overlooked on properly training them for situations like that. Yeah. It's the, we want to keep them trained on educating our children, our youth, but they also need to be ready because of environment, because of culture, because of demographics, they are also, they should be ready for these courses. And I think it'd be huge about your courses being exposed to the educational systems as well. Yeah, you know, uh, we put the, the the answer was to put locks on, on the school doors, right? Uh, and then you go up there and uh, it's like at my wife's school and they have to press a button to be able to let you in. But what happens oftentimes is they, they become complacent as well, the person pushing the button. And so you walk over to the door and they just kind of look in the camera and go and they push the button and let you in. Uh, and so we they really need to understand the body language. What is this person wearing? Is this what they're wearing? Is, is it appropriate for the current, current, uh, current weather conditions outside? Uh, they, they, and it's just like TSA. If you notice, they switch out the person that, uh, that's viewing the bags 
on a regular basis. The reason they do that is because that person who's sitting there looking at those bags over and over again can become complacent in that area. So they're constantly switching them out to have a new eye to be able to look at some of these bags. And so there has to be checks and balances and the training has to go a lot right along with it. And we have to pick the appropriate individuals. I would rather I'd much rather see law enforcement officers be in those schools uh, in those situations. And, uh, and but unfortunately, some of these school districts have moved away from that because they thought, oh, well, law enforcement, you know, it's dangerous for them to be in there. No, it's dangerous for law enforcement not to be in there. 100%. And I agree with you. I mean, because, you know, even even if it just be on the level of like a whole monitor would be beneficial, you know, because a, a lot of times, you know, the presence of, that's like the presence of, Troy, you know this, you know, the presence of military, the presence of law enforcement. That's why you see a lot of banks that they just have a, a law enforcement vehicle sitting in their parking lot because it's going to, it, it's a becomes a deterrent to where you don't have to use that force or, you know, it doesn't have to escalate beyond where it normally would because somebody going in that had ill intention, you know, seeing somebody there, they're going to take a step back or reconsider, you know, otherwise what they would be doing, you know, military presence, you know, that's why a lot of times it keeps things just knowing you're there. It keeps things de-escalated, knowing law enforcement's walking the halls, whether it be a hall monitor, you know, just it de-escalates the situation naturally rather than having to force the de-escalation because once an event already takes place, it's always harder to bring that back down than to have the preventative measures or the preparedness, you know, going into those situations. I agree. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I think when we talk about the de-escalation aspect of it as well, we always assume, like I said, that de-escalation is verbal in nature only. But if, if you're shooting and killing kids and I go in and I put you down and I shoot you as a law enforcement officer, I am stopping the threat. Therefore, I am de-escalating that situation. It is not just verbal in nature. So we have to get past that and understand that even the physical aspect sometimes is de-escalating the situation to where a law enforcement officer or even military personnel wouldn't necessarily have to use deadly force because they used a tool that was that was less than to be able to solve the problem. So that is a de-escalating in itself. Okay, so now I, I, I want to kind of touch on that as well, too. I mean, this is relevant to everyone on this broadcast. So when it, it, when it comes to de-escalation, okay, so... You know, the use of fatal force being, I, I, Chris, you and I spoke on this on our broadcast, and that's why I want to bring this up. Nobody likes to hear the greater good speech. You know, I brought this up before. Nobody likes to hear that greater good speech. But, you know, how much of de-escalation training is that greater good speech of being able to make that decision in that moment that, hey, what this decision I'm about to make is going to be for the greater good of not only my life, but, you know, the, civil, the innocent civilians around me or the country as a whole or my station as a whole, the school as a whole or any situation. The greater good always has to be a consideration when talking about, you know, how to de-escalate or what my next action is going to be. Is it going to be me pull the trigger, me pull this, do that or anything else? So how much of the greater good is built into, you know, training the officers, training military personnel into truly being qualified and understanding and being trained in de-escalation? Well, I think that um, that kind of turned into a culture thing as well, because you're going to have folks like us that understand that why, why I'm carrying an AR-15 in an in a urban neighborhood, you know, um, and you're going to get people that are never going to understand why. Why do they have to shoot that guy 15 times? Well, 
I'm not going to apologize for they got the guy freaking shot at me first. So, you know, and because I trained to a higher standard, you know, I'm going to put the guy down and that's how it's going to have to be, you know, and it comes down to a choice. It's like, it's either him or me, or it's a kid or him or, or what have you. And so trying to kind of bring people all on the same page is just never going to happen. And I think that on some level, it sounds, it's a really bad way to say it this way, but we kind of have to turn a blind eye sometimes to those people. Cause it's like, look, are you going to put a vest and a gun on and go out there and save the world? And if you're not, then don't question how we're doing it. You know what I mean? And it's a, it's a really shitty way. It's a bad attitude, and I don't I don't like saying it that way. But sometimes that's reality. It's like, look, we we arm our military, we arm our police to protect our borders for a specific reason, and we we need those folks out there that are willing to do these things. And there are so few that are willing to do it. You know, and I mean, I, I commend us all for for taking up you know, that, that responsibility and, and take it to the next level, whatever that happens to be, you know, so. And then, so now Troy with you, how much resistance or like not really resistance, but the, the view that others have on, you know, where you're stationed at, is it accepted or does it change, you know, based on time, on moment, on demographic or, you know, with your presence being there, are you ever questioned on, you know, why you do things just as like, you know, Chris was just touching on, I mean, how much of the the greater good, you know, speech or anything else goes into, you know, why you guys make the decisions on doing what you do when it's for the greater good and the protection of the, you know, the country as a whole and everything. Right. Uh, well, I'm in the business to kill the enemy. <laughs> I, 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 there's no other way to say it. Uh, the greater good. Yeah. My greater good is protecting the Constitution and making sure that we have a free way of life, period. I mean, it, the greater good speech doesn't happen. If you can't stand in there and, and you can't take out your orders or carry out your orders, then you're going to be relieved. I have a little bit different stance on it than on the civilian sector. Uh, and it also depends on what mission you're tasked with. Um, you know, if it's a humanitarian effort, that's totally different. Uh, but when I'm downrange and in the desert and the multiple de deployments that we did and continue to do, it's one job. It's kill the enemy. There's no greater good speech. So that's just my take. God bless you. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, Ray, is there anything in regard to the training that kind of instills that in our mind? Because, you know, Chris touched on it, you know, our past broadcast, he touched on it in this broadcast about, you know, those individuals and, and Troy just defined it saying that we relieve those officers, but you know, how much of it is, do you drive that into their mind that, Hey, if you're not going to be in here with full focus on the greater good and knowing that if I have to put somebody down, I'm going to put them down. Or if this happens, I'm going to do this. And you touched on it yourself earlier as well, but you know, how important and vital is that? And you know, the trainees being receptive and really understanding and taking full heed on the training that, you're providing well you know there's people that check a box on an application that says that they're willing to use deadly force uh but that doesn't mean that they're really willing to use deadly force when it comes down to it and it can be for religious reasons it can be for whatever reason they come up with to not use deadly force uh, and those individuals, obviously, we don't want uh, them in, in law enforcement, really we don't want them in the military as well, because uh, they, they, again, are a victim waiting to happen. Uh, 
And so, and they can cost other people their lives. We saw that in San Antonio and I, and I, and I, and I congratulate the chief there uh, in San Antonio PD. They had a, a veteran officer that got into a shooting and two, uh, two newer officers took off running. And so he fired those two new officers and, and, and got rid of them under those circumstances. And because that was the right thing to do. Uh, but the mindset that we, that we teach is, is, is valuable because you have to prepare mentally, not only for that particular situation, but for the aftermath as well. And departments really need to do a better job. And they are really picking up on it to, to recognize when there's issues uh, that officers may be experiencing and to be able to address those issues even after the case or after the fact, because it's not necessarily, hey, let's just send a, let's send an officer to a psychologist and now everything, you know, the problem solved. No, it's not, because it may be something that actually comes up later on uh, because they have another situation is very similar. So that, again, that needs to be follow up with those agencies to, to identify those those areas and those problems. Um, and yeah, I, I think that uh, we're getting better at it, but there's a lot more work that can come into it. Also, educating our community and what we do as law enforcement officers is vital as well, Huge. because we have so much mis misinformation out there right now. Even with the, the stats involving law enforcement shootings, uh, you, you notice that most of the media never puts that out there. For, for, for civilians to see. They don't put it out there because that doesn't meet their agenda. And so we really have to start educating the community and what we do and being much more transparent in what we do and say, okay, here's the reason why an officer would use deadly force. Just like that sheriff in Florida that came out and said, you know what, you point weapons at my uh, deputies, I expect them to shoot you. And, and, and I, think that, uh, I think that was an accurate statement. And sometimes in the United States, that's what we need to say. If you, if you if you try to kill our military personnel, they should shoot you. They're over there not to be your friend necessarily when you're trying to kill our our, our, our military personnel. Just like in the, if you're a citizen here in the United States and you're trying to kill our law enforcement officer, they should use deadly force against you. And now some people don't like that, but that's that's the facts. Yeah, that, that was down here in Hernando County in Florida. Yeah, and, you know he made it, he was blunt about it. Hey, we will shoot you. You know, and now Ray, if if you want to take some time real quick, I. I really like to kind of expose everybody to all that. I know I have it running across the bottom and it's kind of really self-explanatory, but if you want to just, you know, do a briefing on the different types of trainings that, I mean, Blue Shield Tactical Systems does as a whole, but also the ones that, you know, you specifically, you know, train officers, agencies, military personnel for. Yeah, we have our close contact level one, level two, which are standing ground defense. We have um, our social media class, which is also teaching departments how to operate their social media. Uh, if a department is not on social media right now, uh, I, I just can't see that. I mean, why wouldn't you be on social media? Why wouldn't you be out there? Because that's how you get that's how you're going to get your message out when things go bad as well for your agency uh, is, is having that social media. And we actually have a, uh, the one that teaches that is um, uh she was the previous director for NYPD social media department as well. And so she has a, a lot of knowledge and, uh, and part of it. She was also part of two years in the Israeli military uh, where she, uh, she operated their social media. So we teach standing ground defense, uh, which I think is crucial to any defensive tactics. And we teach uh, our de-escalation instructor course, and we teach management courses as well for, for the law enforcement managers that are out there. Um, 
And if there's something else that they, they're needing, we can actually tailor it to their particular agency. Right now, we're in Cedar Park, Texas. Today, we're finishing up our interpersonal skills for professional law enforcement, which teaches law enforcement officers how to interact with the public and how to be more professional when they do so and how to really uh, put the message out there that that agency is wanting. You know, we put those messages on walls often, you know, our goals and we put them along our, our walls and in pictures and we put them on our cards uh, that we may carry around with us. But how often do we actually carry out that message in our daily activities and what we do. I think that was it. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So, so now is there anything else that anybody else wants to add in on this or any questions that anybody has or Troy, you want to touch on this or Chris, do you have any questions or? No, we've, I mean, I got experience with civilian sector coming in and teaching us uh, ground training and uh, close quarters combat. So uh, we did it when I was stationed out in D.C. Uh, for a while. And uh, we had SAMI instructors come through from actually Los Angeles. And I can't remember the, the name of the outfit that came out, but um, it was great training. I mean, that was something different than what I was used to seeing, um, you know, and that was in preparedness for what we were about to do. But uh, it's invaluable. I mean, both sectors, military and the civilian sector, we both, you know, we do different different things and we're required and responsibilities are different. But in the end, I think we're all looking at the same same outcome. So it's great to be able to work with and actually partner up with uh, guys like Ray and his companies and uh, and partner up with some good, ready, relevant tactical training that uh, we could benefit from. So uh, just saying thanks. It was good listening in. Uh, I, I got the little part. My day is pretty busy. So uh, just like everyone else on the screen and uh, nah, it's a good conversation. Thank you so much for joining, Troy. Appreciate it. Hey, Ray, I need to, if I can, I need to get with you offline because I've got a whole, whole long conversation I need to have with you about what I'm doing now. So uh, Michael, if you can put us together, uh, cell phones or what have you, this kind of thing or emails. Well, most most definitely that'd be awesome if you're ray if you're willing because i just i just need your expertise and some, some help yeah sure no not no problem and, and also they can uh they can uh, send the same hate mail that they're sending to michael uh to blue shield tactical at gmail.com well. <laughs> and uh that way i can at least enjoy reading some of it that's uh, been sent to michael <laughs> so um you know uh but uh yeah, you know, you, you got to have a sense of humor uh as well otherwise you'll go crazy uh in this line of work and uh it's it's important and and sometimes in law enforcement uh our humor is a little different too and i'm sure that i know that uh, my niece like i said she's a major in the army so uh hers is a hers is a little dark sense of humor sometimes as well so i think we're along the same lines you know uh but uh but yeah we're i'm here to help you guys and, and here's the thing about it too guys for the for the people that are out there listening and, and that kind of thing I, if you ever have questions we call us email me you know, if I don't know the answer, I'm going to get with our other instructors and, I, and we're going to try to figure something out for you. Uh, I, I really would hate to see if you're not able to get training because uh, your department's not providing it. Contact us as well. I don't mind uh, trying to work with you. And sometimes we'll even do it for you for free where you can come to one of our classes. Uh, our, our goal and when I started this company is for us to provide good training to law enforcement uh, around this country, security personnel. I mean, we I want to make a difference. Law enforcement made a difference for me. And sometimes it was in a negative. Sometimes it wasn't a positive because I'm definitely changed when it came to law enforcement. Uh, but at the same time, I want to give something back. And I think we all should be looking.
looking at that uh, because what mark do we want to leave on society? What what legacy do we want to leave behind? And uh, we really want to leave one of uh, being positive, and we really want to leave one of, of making a difference uh, for our fellow neighbors and for our society. Cool. I like Again, it. And I, I want to give a full disclosure on – I, I want to kind of touch on what uh, I said earlier. You know, I want, I want to <clears throat> keep a full disclosure to where, you know, I, I'm not trying to down – I, I completely support, you know, women in military, women in law enforcement, but it's, it's it, there really is a realization that, I mean, in, anybody with a sensible mind, we, we know physicalities. I mean, we know that, you know, every one of us can physically prepare for certain things, but I just bring a little bit of realities that I, I like bringing things up that a lot of people try to sweep under the rug or they don't talk about, but it's the sure. realities. That's, that's why the whole name of my business is truth, the reality under the headline, because it, it, there are things that, you know, we really do need to consider. And it's huge, especially in the conversation that we're having right now. OK, so I, I just bring things to light to see how much more because what you do can ultimately readily, I mean, you know, prepare them for those situations. You know, individuals that may be not as physical as the next individual. You know, so I, I believe it's a vital conversation and that's why I wanted to invite you on here. And, you know, I do want to also, you know, I want to encourage individuals watching or different agencies that if you want to become a hosting agency as well, you know, to reach out to Ray. And it's one of the things that I'm going to be doing. That's why I want to kind of bring you on here to kind of, you know, get the public knowledge on all of this. And with, you know, Christopher as well, I'd kind of like to do a duality on these different training courses and things like that to where I can get different hosting facilities nationwide, whether it be, you know, certain months of the year that we have like, you know, 12 facilities that are specific all throughout the nation, or if we have ones that are there year round and they can schedule, you know, three months in advance of when those training courses are on and actually kind of keep it, you know, going for a refresher course and especially try to push it for new cadets going in, you know, so. Yeah, I'd also like to say uh, for the civilians that are watching, too, uh, that may even be crucial sometimes to law enforcement uh, or even military personnel. If you want to make a difference, go and, go and apply. Recruitment's down across the board right now for, for law enforcement. I don't know what it's like for the military, but I do know what's down for law enforcement. And so if you want to make a difference and you want to be part of that conversation, how about going and joining? You know, there's some good pay that can be out there that you can make from a, a lot of these various agencies, especially here in our area in DFW. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of departments that are hiring that are doing moving expenses and everything else to help you out. So if you really want to make a difference, actually put on the badge, put on the gun, and you'll see how it can change you and what officers are having to deal with out there on the street. And if you don't want to do that, go out and ride along with an officer, go out and see what they're seeing, be part of what they're doing. And I think, you know, it may give you a different perspective. That's a, I, I, made, I made a, I made a joke last time with you, Chris, about the, the scared street program for law enforcement. You know, it's the, you have that scared street program for law enforcement and for military, you know, it may change that, that perspective that, you know, the, the ride along programs, you know, yeah, Hey, right. first, why don't you go look to make sure that this is right for you. You know, because I do different trainings on, you know, career and I do career assessments on individuals, you know, tr before they're actually going out for a career because it's the, you know, find the things that, you know, have the commonalities with your interests, your hobbies or, you know, what you've always looked into and just kind of feel out, hey, what well, maybe it's not right for you. Because if that if that mindset's in there, as you know, you, Chris, even Troy spoke on that, if you're not willing to do it on full scale, if there's one portion of it, like if I know I'm not going to go in there and discharge my firearm. This career as a whole is not right for me, you know, so understanding that and exposing the cadets or the new recruits that are going in 
to that very question, it's kind of like you said, right, about the, you know, you check a box, or do you, will you ever use fatal force? And they can say yes, but will you really do that? You know, so people need to be in check with themselves, too, and kind of feel out for, you know, if that career is right for them. And a lot of times, you know, individuals that have the interests, like even counselors, you know, sometimes counselors may, you know, find it a better field for them to go join the military or go join law enforcement, you know, because there's so many different hobbies or interests that you'd be beneficial in a new career like that, you know? And, you know, it's unfortunate that some of the law enforcement officer out there uh, in, in some of these poorer states are still making $12, $14 an hour to be a police officer. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I just don't see, I mean, it's definitely a calling. Should I say you don't get into law enforcement for the money. And, uh, and there's a, there's a, there's a lot of, even when we go back to the <clears throat> mindset as well, there's a lot of, uh, most of the cadets that are, that are in police academies right now, never been in a fight in their lives. That's why training is so important, uh, to be able to, to instill the mindset to engage, <clears throat> you know? So yeah, there's, there's much more that we can do. And of course, this is a great topic and I'm glad that we're able to discuss these things. And we could, we could sit here probably all of us because we're passionate about what we're doing. We could probably sit here for days if, you know, if one of us didn't fall out first and, <laughs> and be, and to be able to sit here and talk about these different topics. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to see Troy on here as well. And, uh, I'm always very supportive of, of military, you know, like I said, my niece is in the military. My father was in Vietnam and, uh, you know, it's, uh, we, we need to be supportive of our military. We need to understand that they, they're the reason why we have the freedom that we have. And, and your local law enforcement is also the reason why you have the freedoms that you have. So uh, let's be more supportive of our nation as a whole. And it doesn't matter what party line you're on. Let's be some more supportive of each other. Cause at the end of the day, let me tell you something. We all want to be safe in our homes. We all want to have prosper. And so we can find a lot of commonality in, uh, in, in us as, as Americans. Perfect. Thank you for that. And, you know, I just, uh, I'd love to have you back on says, you know, cause you know, Chris, we're going to be doing, you know, ongoing things with this show as well too, to kind of expose the public to kind of work on, you know, the civilians, as you brought up many times during this broadcast, right. That, you know, the more that the public knows and the more that civilians know about what really goes on behind the scenes outside of what, you know, we're fed on the TV or anything else like that. The same thing with Troy, you know, people know that the military exists, but do they know the activity and just the daily ongoings that they have to go through, you know, to make that happen for us, you know, and it's so many of the different freedoms that we all take for granted, whether the country as a whole being safe with you, Troy, or, you know, with law enforcement, with us being able to know that, hey, it's safe for me to go down to the grocery store or safe for my kids to go down to school, whatever the case may be, you know, and it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind. And we just take these liberties for granted to where they need to be exposed to these things more often and things like that. So uh, I'd love to have you back on. And, you know, we're going to have a separate conversation outside of this, too, because I, I do want to have some hosting facilities so you're able to provide different training because you know i do demographics a lot and i do the studies and everything else as well too so i look at different agencies across the nation that you know have the lower statistics that you know need that training more than the next may you know so i do like to expand this out and again i want to have you know all of you back on again and then you know i'd like to have you know you and christopher ray you know, being in contact and everything else as well, too, because I, I believe you guys could both expand each other out and kind of, you know, get this going how it needs to get going. You know, and I also have a lot of, you know, politicians as well, too, that I'd like to push some policy as well, too, with the different things that you have in 
the more definitive side of what the programs, the courses actually do. So that way, when I'm writing different policies or proposals in that, I can actually have that verbiage as far as what the actual provisions of each one of your courses are and why that is going to be beneficial for each agency, each officer, each, you know, the nation as a whole. Sure. Yeah, I'm always, always here to help guys. And it's always great to meet like-minded people that, uh, and I even like meeting the ones that don't agree with you too. So yeah. uh, that too. way we can at least have some discussion, you know, uh, and learn from each other. Hopefully, uh, like I said, again, uh, I guarantee we can find some commonality there. So perfectly. I appreciate everybody's time today. Everybody stay blessed and, you know, reach out to Ray, you know, contact Ray. It's the blue shield tactical.com and, you know, view the courses, reach out to me if, whether you're an officer, whether you're an agency and you need help with the funding or anything else like that, reach out to me. I have different resources as well, too. Plus, I do grant writing and everything so I can kind of help get your agency the training that you truly need and deserve. And, you know, Troy, thank you so much for joining this. And I look forward to speaking with you here with on Monday. And then, you know, Christopher, you as well, too. We're going to get our weekly schedule going and, you know, have your book reading and everything else as well, too. And I just want everybody on here to, you know, stay safe and stay blessed in all things. And then I thank you everybody at home for watching and, you know, reach out, ask questions if you guys need to, and everybody stay blessed, stay safe. Cool. Thanks guys. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thank you.